Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, May 31st, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So the Rev and I conversed or conversated um, yesterday afternoon. Can we tell that story? I mean, why do we joke around with the word converse? Or it's probably time. It's been a while. It's been a while. So there was a, uh, a sports interview on ESPN, um, home of NBA Madness. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's a story for another day. Um, the, the, the ESPN model, you're, you ready? I'll get Rev in trouble here. The ESPN model is apparently to disparage, no, nah, to ignore, I mean, there, there's no disparaging here to ignore the markets that aren't the top 25 markets in America. I mean, it's pretty obvious what ESPN strategy is. We don't care about flyover country. We could care less whether people in Des Moines, uh, what they want to hear sports related, but I mean, this is about Boston, New York, Chicago, LA, uh, Miami, Dallas, uh, the major metropolitan area. Uh, I, I, I text Rev and I say, Rev, it's 24-7 NBA. But it's nothing but NBA. It's NBA, NBA, NBA. I understand the NFL. I mean, as much as I'd like to see ESPN cover more college football, I understand the business strategy behind, you know, nothing but the NFL. Because America has spoken loudly and clearly and said, we are a football nation and nobody does it like the NFL. I mean, I get that. That's sound business practice. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that ESPN's business model is trying to convert as many NFL fans into NBA fans as possible. Um, do we have that much sway? I don't know that that's their strategy, but it sure seems that way. Um, but anyway, so so back in the day when ESPN talked a little um, college sports or something other than the National Basketball Association and the 25 media markets. And I did read somewhere one day that 81% of their listenership is in 25 American cities. So, I mean, I guess that's the They're way. They play into you their know, audience. I, mean? I guess they that's what they believe. But there's no data out there that shows people are that enamored with the NBA. I mean, they, they are with the NFL. I mean, as a college football fan, I turn the radio on ESPN radio, and I'm going like, man, give me some college football. And they're going like, No. I mean, I understand that business decision. I don't like it, but I understand it. Um, I mean, the market says that that more of their listeners are more interested in the NFL than college football. I accept that. I don't like it, but I accept it. But the NBA, there's no metric that shows that's the case. A Thursday night exhibition game in the NFL draws more than an NBA final game uh, between the Heat and whom? It's the Denver Nuggets, I think. There you go, the Heat and Denver Nuggets. And the only reason I, I know, know that is because I've tried to listen to ESPN <laughs> to see they'll sneak a little college football uh, in there, and they just <laughs> they refuse to. It's wall-to-wall NBA. Anyway, back in the day when the NFL, excuse me, when ESPN covered a little college athletics, they were talking about this lineman, um, and he was a guest on the show. And the two hosts, smart butts like uh, Rev and I, smart Alex like Rev and I, when the guy left the studio, they kind of made an inside joke. They basically said, hey, did you hear him say conversate? Big linemen, you know how them big linemen are. Big country boys, you know they um, they, they kind of abuse the Queen's English. <laughs> Did you hear them say? Anybody knows it's converse. It's not conversate. So they Googled, you know, is the word conversate appropriate? And the Google search, and I trust Google for what it's worth, but the Google search said the word converse is appropriate. The word conversate is also appropriate. So they Googled the guy that was in the studio, and he was an offensive lineman for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And he went to Harvard <laughs> and graduated third in his class <laughs> at Harvard. He's 6'5", 260, had a crew cut haircut, but he graduated 
in the top one half of one percent in his class at Harvard. <laughs> and um, they stereotyped him as a dumb sure football did. player Here, here's who a big, didn't know language. Here's a big white English. boy with a crew cut off the farm, I would imagine. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. He says, ain't y'all. You know how those guys are. You know, the, you know. Uh, I, I know this when I ran for office. I know that some of the uh, editorial boards and newsrooms across South Carolina deducted about 25 or 30 IQ points when, when I opened my mouth. And I'm okay with that. But anyway, this is kind of an interesting. Be, cov- be careful judging a book by its uh, by its cover. So converse and conversate are both appropriate. And they actually did kind of a mea culpa, did a bit of a, uh, an apology over the air, said, hey, we, we, we stereotyped this big dumb country boy. And he was not a big dumb country boy. He went to Harvard and graduated with honors from Harvard um, and went on to the NFL and played offensive line. And I guess in the locker room, he conversed or conversated with his teammates, whatever whatever um, he chose to. Update. You ready? Got two stories we touched on yesterday that I want to touch on today. Um, Chase Elliott, one of the good guys in racing. What have I said historically about Chase Elliott? He and Dale Earnhardt Jr. are wildly popular. Why? Because they don't think they hit a triple. They're not as full of themselves as you would expect someone with a last name, Earnhardt and Elliott, to be. They, they they kind of embrace the um the legacy name, the fact that, hey, my dad was Dale Earnhardt, and and I, I'm not stupid enough to believe that if my name were Dale Smith, you know, my name my dad's was my dad's name was Bill Elliott. I'm I'm smart enough to know that if I were Chase Smith or Chase Jones, I'd probably be beating around a dirt track somewhere, you know, trying to get somebody to pay for my meal at the Waffle House after we raced all night or half the night. Um, and and they've, they've always done that. Now, I want to give the bad boy of sports radio, our ESPN, believe it or not, um, he converse, converses or conversates on ESPN. I think he's down, he's having some surgery, if I'm not mistaken. I want to wish him well. I mean that yep. sincerely. I want to wish him well. Um, when you do what we do for a living, the last thing you want is complications with your voice. And I think he's had some vocal cord issues and is scheduled for surgery. Is it this week or next? It's today. Yeah, it's today. Uh, so we certainly want to wish him nothing but um, the best thinking about you, praying about you, praying for you. Bad boy, hope everything goes uh, goes your way. Um, but but he's, um, I mean, he, he had a theory or a, an idea about NASCAR. I mean, NASCARs, we talked about the NBA and the NFL. Well, I mean, NASCARs had its issues when it comes to guarding an audience you know, achieving ratings. They've had some struggles here. It's somewhat of a niche sport. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Um, you, you try to carry hockey everywhere. It just doesn't work. I mean, there's certain markets that just don't embrace hockey. It's more of a Northeast, actually a Canadian sport that um, that made its way across the uh, our northern border. Now, I get they go crazy in in, uh, in Florida. I mean, they're, they're, there's a team down there that, you know, draws record trials. They win Stanley Cup championships occasionally. But, but I mean, on, on the whole... And or in the whole and on the average, it's a regional niche sport. NASCAR is finding out the hard way that, yeah, there's an appetite for a race or two in Chicago, but there's not an appetite for two every year. I mean, the fans are not that intense, not that motivated, um, not, not that historically aligned with the sport. But Bad Boy had kind of an interesting idea. Why don't we take the good guy and make him the heel? What better storyline would there be? If the most popular driver and uh, the one the fans most adore became, and I'm using a kind of a wrestling terminology, a heel, what if he became the bad guy? What if he became the guy that if you lean on him, he'll wreck you? I mean, he, he you know, we had some of the, um, some of the, some of the steering uh, data 
And it shows that Chase Elliott intentionally wrecked Denny Hamblin. Now, and in fairness, and I don't want to be fair to Chase or unfair to Chase, and in fairness to Chase Elliott, Denny Hamlin didn't give him much room for about three or four laps. And I think Chase in his audio says, man, he tried to wreck us twice in four laps. You know, I'm not going to tolerate a guy just kind of running me to the wall. That's that driver's code of conduct. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rev doesn't know it. I don't know it. Why? Because we don't drive race cars. <laughs> we speculate on what the driver's code of conduct is, but we honestly don't know. But NASCAR decided that Chase crossed the line, intentionally wrecking a fellow competitor. And um, I mean, there, there are ways to get you back, I guess. They've just decided that what we call right rear hooking somebody just to, and if you watch it, I mean, it was a hard I mean, hit. I mean, when, when yeah. Hamlin hit the wall. And I think that's what got everybody's yeah. attention. You that's can't scary. do that, man. I mean, those, those guys were going, you know, nearly 200 miles an hour, and you can't right hook somebody and send them into the wall. I mean, you can end someone's career there. And um, anyway, I mean, Chase Elliott, the most popular driver in NASCAR, um, you know, the the, the guy that when, when Chase was not in the car, he broke his leg in a, what, a snowboarding accident. Yeah. Uh, the ratings were down about 500,000 viewers per broadcast. So the la- I mean, Denny Hamlin loves driving race cars. Denny Hamlin loves getting paid to drive race cars. Denny Hamlin probably ain't crazy about Chase Elliott today. But Hamlin knows that Chase Elliott in that car is good for the sport that, that he makes a living in. So there's kind of an inner complication there. Um, I'm mad with Chase. I think Chase should be suspended. But, but I'm in a sport that doesn't need to lose 500,000 viewers every time our biggest star is not in his car because Earnhardt Jr. is not racing any longer. So Chase Elliott is the biggest star in, um, in NASCAR. I didn't say he's the best driver. I didn't say he's the best team. I said he's the biggest star in, um, in NASCAR. So, so bad boys always said NASCAR needs kind of a game changer. I mean, it needs something to create a, a more provocative storyline. Uh, as my boys like to say, I, I get tired of watching cars going in circles. Now, now, I believe there's a lot more to that. There's strategy. There's camber and caster and, you know, the, there's air pressure and, and, the, and hookups. The and going into the corner sure. and the acceleration well, I mean, coming out to, of the I corner. I try to explain that the best way you I know did. how. Well, I mean, a, a, more big, than I a big part of racing outside of Daytona and Talladega, can I outbreak the guy going into the corner and can I out-accelerate him coming out of the corner? I mean, that's kind of racing 101 if you grew up around the sport and understand it. And some of these tracks are kind of one-lane tracks. And you can't. I mean, the brakes are identical one to another, and they're not enough brakes. They're not heavy enough brakes. These drivers are nervous about wearing the brakes out on the car. So you're hesitant to try and outbreak the guy in the corner and go coming out of the corner. The cars don't have enough horsepower. They're just not powerful enough, and you can't out-accelerate a guy. I mean, it's almost like, hey, let's make one car, let everybody clone that one car, and just watch them follow one another in a circle for three and a half hours. I mean, that's kind of what racing has turned into, and that's why they've lost a lot of audience. It's not real competitive. It's not real interesting. I'm sorry. I mean, I love it, and I watch it, and I, and I schedule my Sundays around it, or Saturday nights when they get, you know, in, in the in the throes of summer, some of the Saturday night racing. But, but it would be an interesting storyline, as Bad Boy said, to make its biggest star, the, the, the cowboy riding the white horse and wearing the white hat, all of a sudden swaps that in for the black horse and black hat. And there is no racial insensitivity to that. Damn it, I'm tired of being, you know, you can't say that. Well, I did. And I mean it. I mean, you know, um, the, the good guy and the bad guy. And and I think having Chase Elliott, you know, kind of take the, um, the white cowboy hat off and put the black cowboy hat on is good for the sport in general. And I don't know how much of that. Rev said this before, and I've always been interested. We know that... Um, Wrestling is, dare I say, choreographed. (laughs) 
Don't you dare say fake. No. Uh, don't no. you dare say that. I learned wrestling, that wrestling is choreographed. Yeah. Um, you believe, as I do, that some of that racing seems to be a bit choreographed. Mm-hmm. This guy needs to get mad at that guy, and this guy needs to, you know, flip the bird at that guy. Why? It creates storylines right. and an interest, and, and fans will tune in and pay closer attention. But I don't know what would be a bigger deal than if the most popular driver in NASCAR became a bad guy. I mean, if he jumped the fence, and the next thing you know, he's just plowing into people. I mean, he's wrecking people every week, and they can't do anything with him. Here's the nicest guy on the planet. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's wrecking this guy and wrecking that guy. And what the hell happened to Chase Elliott? I don't know, man, but you better not mess with him. Why? Because he's a bad dude now. He's not <laughs> Mr. Nice Guy uh, any longer. And I do think that would be an interesting storyline. So if you fall into the camp of some of NASCAR may be somewhat choreographed, and I'm not talking about the racing. I'm talking about some of the extracurriculars uh, around racing. That that would be kind of an interesting storyline. And I did think of that coming over. I thought Bad Boy was having surgery um, today, and I thought of him and his idea. And um, and it looks to me like the chase for one day in one fleet second said, I'm, I'm going to be the bad guy and right hooking somebody. And you're right. I mean, that, there's a chance you end somebody's career doing that. And NASCAR has to be consistent. I mean, if the data shows, and that now Chase was smart. Chase didn't say, of course I tried to wreck him. He raced me to the wall twice in four laps. Chase said, you can't drive these things when <laughs> when you beat them off the wall. You can't drive them. Um, you know, the tow rods being or the tie rods being or whatever. Um, but but the data clearly shows that Elliott, you know, wrecked Hamlin and then got his car back in in kind of a straight fashion. Uh, the the other update, and then we'll get to the, to the issue. Ralph Norman will be with us at 7.05. Ralph is a no vote on the debt ceiling deal. Uh, I'll kind of go in the best details I can prior to Ralph coming on the air. But I do want to give an update. I want to thank Ralph for being as patient as he was with me. I am today, uh, well, at some point in time today, um, I will no longer be um, a customer of a certain cable Mm. provider in our neck of the woods. Um, I I told you a little bit of the story. I am a, I guess I can, I'm a, I'm a Verizon wireless customer. Verizon sent me an email offering Wi-Fi, wireless home internet. Home internet. Yeah, wireless, wireless home internet. No ax, no coax cable. It's some little weird-looking white box with a light on the side. Uh, if the light's red, it's bad. If the light's white, it's good. You, you, you press in, excuse me, you mash in, you know, your um your address, and it shows whether you qualify or not. Josh was actually kind of interested in this. Um, this morning. So, so my son comes over yesterday cause I can't do anything myself that has anything to do with, with technology. I mean, I, I, I get frustrated. I cuss too much. I mean, I yell and scream and the neighbors get mad and scared and afraid and they call the police. So, you know, we, we don't do that any longer. So my kid comes over, my oldest kid, and he helped me, um, plug it up. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we, we plugged it up and it began searching, whatever that means, searching for signal that there's a password you go. Long story short, it worked like a champ. Rev told me to go to this website, speednet. Speedtest.net. Speedtest.net. And, and, you know, I'm on my iPad. Everything's hooked up. I'm disconnected from the other provider. I've now got, and my, you know, I mean, I'm saving a lot of money. I did the math yesterday. And it's, um, it's more than a, I mean, it's more than half. Excuse me. It's less, the bill now will be less than half what the bill was Good for you streaming that's, and and this verizon substantial. wireless home internet 
so system. Not, see, not only did you cut the cord, which is one thing where you got rid of the cable boxes and you're going to you know, exclusively to streaming providers for your television entertainment watching, right? And your sports watching mostly. Uh, but you have also cut the internet access cord, and that is through a wireless system, which is you know, a relatively new thing, I guess. And, and I would imagine. So congratulations. Well, I mean, it's my bill comment. I mean, the, the, the calls for the former. Um, internet provider and television cable was about $241. I don't get everything, but I do get kind of a sports enhanced package. And I think I was paying about $241 for internet and cable. That goes to about a hundred bucks from 241 yeah, to bad. about a hundred dollars. Um, and that's with, you know, the streaming service, YouTube television is what it is. YouTube TV and the Verizon, Verizon wireless home internet system um come i mean it's about a hundred bucks a month for me and um and, and it was about test. 241 but the key test was the data i mean we talked about chase elliott and the data so rev tells me last night go to speedtest.net and and you know on your ipad and press go and i did press go i screenshot the data once it's settled i mean it goes through all these gyrations and and things i don't know anything about test. And, um, and, you know, I took a screenshot, sent it to Rev Rev, said, wow, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's good. I've got plenty of bandwidth is what you're saying. So if my wife's watching TV, I'm watching TV, my daughter's home watching TV, all of us are on a computer, Rev says, you're good. I mean, that's yeah. enough bandwidth to do all you're trying to do and 4K and all this other stuff that you know much more about than I. Anyway, I'm just happy that, that my 241 turned into 100. And I feel very you comfortable. Right. And um, and I told somebody, I got another friend of mine, kind of like Rev, a little bit technologically savvy. And I said, hey, man, I think I cut my bill in half. He said, you got boxes everywhere, man. I mean, you, you, know, you got to stay on top of this. It's so similar to what Rev, you got boxes in every room. You got boxes here and boxes there and cables coming out of this wall. And nobody has that anymore. Nobody has cables coming out of walls looking into boxes any longer. I mean, you got to keep up with this stuff and pay close attention and i guess he's right so um so anyway if you're out there as a i know i'm not this is you know verizon that pay me to do this i wish they would um but but <laughs> if you're sure. out there and you're a verizon customer go to home internet verizon and in, in the left corner that there's a box and you can put your address and if you qualify and you're currently a verizon wireless customer you can get wireless home internet for 25 dollars a month three-year price guaranteed I mean, that's a good deal, man. Uh, they added to your phone bill. The last thing I need is another something added to my phone bill, but it's money coming from here and money coming from there. So, um, yeah, thanks to Rev. And, you know, congratulations, Verizon, on putting a product out that is, is easy to hook up, easy to install, and works as they said it would. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. want to get to the, to, the, um, to, the, to the debt ceiling debate. Ralph Norman, Congressman Ralph Norman, who's a member of the Rules Committee, and um, and a no-vote. Russell Fry informed me yesterday he's a no-vote. Russell can't join us this morning, but he told me yesterday on the phone, you can tell your audience loudly and clearly that I am a, a, a no-vote in support of the compromise that Kevin McCarthy made with President Joe Biden. Take a break. Back in a few. I got some of these high points in this 99-page document. Ralph Normal to be with us, scheduled to be with us at 705. Now, live radio, who knows? Things happen uh, from time to time that don't allow us to follow through or doesn't allow Norman to come on. Russell Fry talked to me yesterday and said, uh, I can't come on the air. He's got something, some conflict, but please let the listeners know that I am a no. And 
I mean, personally, I get it. I mean, I understand haggling and compromising and, uh, you know, this is this in Ken's world or Dave's world or, or Josh's world. This is all of our world together, and you want certain things, and I want other things. But this is a bad deal. I mean, th- this is a bad deal. All I've heard about it that makes me consider where I would land on it without getting into the how the sausage is made and the nuts and bolts of it is look who's for it and who's against it. Well, right? I mean, Mitt Romney and Bill Crystal are for it. Right. That's about all I need to know. Democrats are well, for I mean, it. And the Democrats largely are for it. The Limit Save Grow Act was a uh, kind of a fairly comprehensive bill. I mean, in all honesty, it was. Uh, it addressed some of the Biden inflationary policies. Um, it limited future spending and a pretty substantial and as substantial as you can expect out of Washington. I mean, it's not some reformation of government by any stretch, but but th- there was a um, the major portions. I'll sound like a politician's here. Uh, Biden's inflationary agenda were addressed as a kind of a, a swap off for raising the debt ceiling. Under this current construct, the president doesn't have to worry ever again about the debt ceiling unless he gets elected in January. Takes it off the table until January 2025. And a lot of my reason for opposing it, without even knowing some of the, the nuances, it, it takes it off the table as an issue in the 24 presidential campaign. And I think we, the public, deserve to know where Donald Trump stands on the debt, where Ron DeSantis stands on the debt, where Joe Biden stands on the debt, where Robert Kennedy stands on um, the debt. I think all the viable candidates, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, whomever, um, needs to c- kind of take a position and stance, and that's neutered. I mean, that goes away. It doesn't matter anymore. If, if you asked me, if I'm running for president in 24, and you ask me, what do you think of the debt? Well, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, there, there is no issue until January 25. So, so a lame duck Congress won't, won't be obligated to deal with with the what I think is the fundamentally biggest issue or the biggest fundamental issue in America. The only thing I like about this, Republican Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey, and he voted yes in the Rules Committee yesterday. He was kind of the swing vote, and he voted. Uh, all that does is advance into a floor vote. I mean, that gets it out of the out of committee, out of the Rules Committee. Um, but Massey got a one percent. Excuse me, if we can't budget. The way Congress is designed to budget, and we have to go to continuing resolution, it enacts a 1% spending cut. Now we can argue the language. How committed is is the language? And, you know, a, a lot of what, I mean, I, I read something Speaker Gingrich wrote yesterday. I read something the Wall Street Journal editorial board, board wrote yesterday. And I mean, they're, they're making assumptions that politicians are going to do what they say they're going to do. I mean, Gingrich basically says that, you know, you have their word. I mean, you've got Joe Biden's word. You've got Kamala Harris's word. To me, I'm sorry, guys, it isn't worth much. I mean, when Joe Biden says, I give you my word that, that at some point in time, I'll, I'll agree to work with you on making government smaller. I mean, that's pretty naive to believe that. And, you know, Kamala Harris, who could potentially be a tie-breaking vote in the Senate, you know, basically gave a soft commitment to the Republicans that she would you know, be in favor of at some point in time in the not-too-distant future. Uh, how many times have we heard this? You know, I'll be willing to sit down and, and more aggressively address the debate in meaningful fashion. The Democrats love government. Government costs a lot of money. For the Democrats to agree to cut spending, they've got to make the government smaller. How many of you believe that there's a Democrat in Washington willing, but without without some some some, you know, legal authority, to just sit down with Republicans and agree to make government smaller. It's hard enough to find Republicans willing to make government smaller. 
There are no Democrats in Washington unless forced by some legislative authority to make government smaller. And this deal requires Republicans, you ready, trusting the Democrats to at some point in time sit down and make government smaller. I ain't buying it. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Yeah, you nailed it, Ken. The real question is the Republicans really want uh, smaller government. But, you know, I got it. You know, yesterday we were talking about these corporations. I'll go back to the death thing. And a friend of mine sent me a video, and it basically reinforced what we said. The short version is this. These corporations are being basically blackmailed into going woke because if they don't go woke with that DEI, ESG, all those three-letter whatever, they will not get funding. They may not necessarily believe what they're doing, but they're being basically blackmailed by people like BlackRock and these global bankers and everything. They're these big corporations, and they can't work without funding. Now, it may be a little bit of wokeness, too. But what the goal is, and as they know, and again, it goes back to what y'all probably tired of hearing me say, this is all orchestrated on purpose with the cathedral. They are trying to actually destroy iconic American brands, destroy our morale, our fiber. They're also trying to get us pitted against one another. I mean, all of this is off of the communist playbook, and they want to get uh, two classes, the elite ruling class and the serfs, and we'd all be the serfs. So everything that's happening is on purpose. But another thing I was saying is, and and Dave just nailed it, that's what I said all along, politics isn't real difficult. You just find out who's for it, and then you know you need to be against it. I mean, you look at who was part of the Ukrainian war. Well, I'm against it. Who was part of this snag old bill? Well, I'm against it. And that's just that simple. But, you know, I would like to staff Congress. I know it's about, I'd like someone to ask Jay Proud, one of those guys, what are they going to do about this cathedral? Are they part of it themselves? I mean, are they willing to do something? Look at what BlackRock and these, you know, what is behind Budweiser, Target, and these other corporations, coal and the rest of them, intentionally destroying their businesses. It doesn't make sense unless there's a unless there's an end goal, and the only end goal is what we're talking about: communism or some form of Chakal communism, where we just have uh, an elite and a and a and a serfdom. But I would love to see what Congress is doing to look into companies like BlackRock and I think you said Vanguard and some of those other people. I mean, they're the only people that can investigate them, and they'll probably pay them off, too. But anyway, thank you, buddy. Thank you, Breeze. Well, I mean, it really, I mean, the, the congregation of these people at the World Economic Forum in Davos, I mean, this the Davos man and woman. I mean, Vanguard's not one person. BlackRock's not one person. I mean, Larry Fink is CEO of BlackRock, but, but, I mean, Larry Fink doesn't run BlackRock single-handedly. I mean, there's a board that they're executive agent. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's a big company. It's a complicated enterprise. But but do, do I believe that Vanguard, BlackRock, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, I mean, there's another handful of companies out there. I would imagine big energy is a part of this. Um, you know, education, big education would be a part of this. And, um, and it is a cathedral. I mean, we talked about Curtis Yarvin and, and Peter Thiel. I mean, that's kind of Thiel's claim to fame before getting into Republican politics is being highly suspicious of this monolith, the, the, this big glacier that everybody's a part of, and it moves real slow, but but nobody can stop it. 
And, you know, we've offered several alternative ideas or opinions. Now, now the one thing that I'm suspecting, and, and guys, I don't have any analytics. I mean, I've got an analysis on the bill, the 99-page bill. I've got an analysis on, you know, what, what I think needs to be in there and doesn't need to be in there. There are people I trust, a bill I don't trust. There are people you trust and people you don't trust. I don't have any analysis at all to, to, to convince me, excuse me, to confirm the suspicion that I have that the Seinfeld watcher is waking up. I, I, I don't. I mean, it's just something instinctive. It's something gut-driven with me. Um, it goes back to this, and I say a lot, and I'm not saying this in a gloating fashion, but, but there's a reason that I put my name on the ballot eight times and won every time. I mean, it, it's not I'm smarter. It's not. I mean, you know that by now. I mean, it's not that I'm the most competent candidate on the planet. You know that by now. It's obviously I don't have the best resume, but 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 there, there's always been. I mean, the one thing that I've always felt I'm okay at is a BS meter, and, and I and I sense things in a way. And and I guess when you make a living with with car dealers and truck dealers and and steel salesmen and you know employees that may or may not tell you the truth, and then you step into politics and and the foray into politics kind of enhances that quality or attribute. And I'm not saying it's a great quality to have. But it's something that I have confidence in. And and my BS meter, my instinct, my gut tells me that the Seinfeld watcher is beginning to wake up. And and I think Bud Light is a reflection of that. I think Target is a reflection of that. I think North Face um, could be an inflection. I was thinking about North Face yesterday. That's a little bit NASCAR-ish. I mean, North Face is a little bit niche-ish. I mean, right, I mean, it, that, that would be a niche. I mean, it's not... Um, hey, let's drive to Atlanta to go to the North Face Outlet because I'm thinking about climbing Mount Everest. I mean, that, you know, you see where I'm headed. I mean, that that would be, we, we talked about what their demo is. Who is the customer to North Face? Well, it ain't the Bud Light drinker, by and large. It's not the Target shopper, uh, by and large. But but on Bud Light and Target, I think the reason you're seeing um, such a decline in sales and, and, and market value or market valuation is the Seinfeld watcher says, look, man, I'm willing to let a company be uh, liberated. I'm willing to let a company be independent. I'm willing to let a company be a little bit political. I get it. I mean, that's a complicated world. I don't live in it. I'm too busy watching Seinfeld. But, but damn. I mean, it, you know, to, to, to try and offend every heterosexual white male and, and 80% of the beers consumed by heterosexual white males. I mean, what's going on here? And I think at times the Seinfeld watcher is forced to be considerate of what's happening in a world that he doesn't care much about or she doesn't care much about. They're like, hey, man, I mean, that's politics. You know how those folks are. You know how that game's played. The reason I don't pay attention is I don't want to get, I mean, I don't want to get in that muck. I don't want to be mad at everybody. Anybody mad at me? And I don't want to go to a meeting where, you know, I got to stand tall or stand firm or stand solidly in opposition or in favor of this. I didn't sign up for that. Don't want any part of that. But I think um, that the activist left, and, and really and truly, it goes back to the cathedral. I mean, when you, have, when you have all the power, all the influence, all the authority, and we've agreed that leftists has hijacked academia, the leftist has t- taken over uh, media. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Jim Comey was on MSNBC yesterday, and it made me uncomfortable watching how comfortable he was with a member of the media. But I mean, it's bizarre to me that, that he's able just to brush off the, the Durham report the way he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who profess to be journalists. I mean, you don't believe they are. I don't believe they are. But historically, the Seinfeld viewer has. I mean, historically, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're a former Seinfeld viewer and you turn on MSNBC yesterday, 
And you see Jim Comey say, well, there's no revelation of the Durham report. I mean, we've made a few mistakes. We've got a few things wrong. But there's no reason to question integrity and virtue of the FBI. Of course there is. It's a corrupt, politicized organization, and you're corrupt. You're a bad cop. I mean, Jim Comey is the definition of a bad cop. And he sits so comfortably on the set at MSNBC because to Breeze's point, he knows on this side of the table sits a man who's part of the cathedral. And on the other side of the table is a person who is a part of the cathedral. I mean, they're varying degrees. They don't run Goldman. It's almost like they're winking and nodding I mean, they, at each other. They don't even have to wink and nod anymore. I mean, because there, that's the cathedral. There is, no email, there is no email <laughs> before you come on the show. It's automatic. Huh? Hey, um, Mr. Comey, will you appear on MSNBC? Wink, wink, nod, nod. You know how we are. I mean, we'll go eat. There is, they're gonna have to, that there's already, there's an unspoken expectation with these people. And that's what makes me uneasy. And, and what was he wearing? Did you see the video? He's wearing like some, a, a, some black shirt, well, maybe, I, maybe even a turtleneck and, and, shirt. And Comey, I mean, he's a bad cop. I mean, he's <laughs> diminished. He's diminished significantly the virtue and integrity of the FBI. The most important law enforcement agency on the planet has had its virtue and morality and integrity highly questioned by the Durham report, and Comey comes on and says, nothing to see here. Let's move past that. And the and the reporter, the journalist from MSNBC says, okay, if you say so. I mean, it's, it, and then, uh, it was scary to watch how comfortable he was being interviewed by a major news organization. Who is the parent company of MSNBC? NBC, NBC News. News. I mean, just think of that, guys, how comfortable Comey was sitting in his... Uh, like Johnny Cash and Joe Morrison combined, right, I guess. exactly. You know, with all that black on. <laughs> and maybe that's part of his charade now. I maybe. mean, maybe that's part of his shtick. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm a bad cop. Do something about it. You know why you can't? Because I'm one of them. But the Seinfeld watcher is waking up. Ask Bud Light. Ask Target if they are or not. But Take he, a break. he still spouted the company line, Trump bad. In fact, he said Trump, if he's reelected, existential threat. To the rule of law in and this that's nation. their word i mean that's their word with trump but but you'll find out desantis the three most evil people in the history of mankind will eventually be hitler desantis and trump and the mainstream media's narrative will be well who's more hitler like trump or desantis <laughs> depends on how the polls look yeah yeah on that Whoever's given in the league. yeah who's ever who if desantis overtakes trump and becomes the the favorite to win the republican primary you know trump's not so bad this guy is the next Adolf Hitler. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number Wednesday morning. We thought that we, um, you know, the Republicans had rallied. They passed a Limit Save Grow Act. It was a fairly comprehensive bill that significantly cut portions of what I'll call the Biden inflationary agenda in exchange for limiting future spending, excuse me, and limiting future spending in exchange for uh, modest increases to the debt ceiling. We don't believe that's the case now. We believe over the weekend, Kevin McCarthy, or I do, I can't speak for others, but I personally believe that Kevin McCarthy gave up too much of what's in the deal the uh, the Republicans of the House passed. I think a person who agrees with me is Congressman Ralph Norman. He's agreed to join us this morning. Ralph, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Glad to be with you. Is that an accurate articulation? I mean, I think McCarthy gave up too much. Do you believe that as well? You know, I do, because it's like buying a car with all the ornaments. You you had a deal to 
you know, nice tires, nice interior. And then all of a sudden when you end up, when the car is delivered, it doesn't have tires, half the transmission's missing. And it's kind of what we ended up with this. I uh, We got painted in a corner. And I tell you, I, I'm just tired of, in, in, in Washington, D.C., it's always next year. It's, we, we're going to cut spending. We're going to. Uh, make sure the you get a balanced budget, uh, and then you hear the excuse, "Well, the Senate's not going to pass it." Well, I'm not in the Senate, and today is the time that we can make a difference, and we just didn't do it here. The uh, most egregious thing that I went off the rails on is when they gave Joe Biden, who is a corrupt, uh, compromised politician, his whole administration, full reign to increase the national debt to any amount through 25. I mean, get that. We had it at 1.5 through March of next year with cuts, with genuine cuts today. And they just cut all that out. And it's a, um, you know, they say they're going to save $1.5 trillion. Well, show me where you're going to save it. If you're going to save it, we've got so many things we could cut out now. The only key to Washington to make a real difference is defund these programs. And they left the student loan uh, deal in place for the most part. They left, took out work requirements for Medicaid, which has got 96 million people on it. They, it, was, it, it is for TANF and SNAP, but that's not the big programs that need the work requirements. And, Ken, imagine 20 hours a week. Some of it can be voluntary. Uh, really? Um, but it is what it is. The Democrats love it. They will get over a hundred, you know, hundred members voting for it. They've got a faction that is crying cro- crocodile tears, saying how bad it is. But anytime you get a Democrat uh, in today's world to vote with you, you know you're doing something wrong. Ralph, it made its way out of the Rules Committee last night, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me. Thomas Massey of Kentucky voted yes to let it out of the Rules Committee. Do we have any idea? I mean, will you guys vote on this bill tonight? And, and and how fragmented are the Republicans in support or, or defiance? It, yes, it made it out of the Rules Committee. If we'd have had and Chip Roy and, and I voted against it, uh, and for your listeners, the, the Rules Committee is probably the most powerful committee that I see in Congress today. Nine Republicans, four Democrats. If Thomas had stuck with us, we could have defeated it because all four Democrats voted against it. Uh, for different reasons, but uh, it will make it to the floor and it will pass as far as fractured. It's, as I mentioned in caucus, they just, you know, it, it's a expectation that we're going to do something and the American people just deserve better. The only people that love this deal are the Chinese, China, which is buying our debt and uh, an administration that continues the insane uh, programs that he is since he's been in office, that he's continuing. Nothing on the border, um, nothing to really, no programs cut, uh, and then the insanity on increasing the debt uh, or the the ability to increase it with no limits, which is insane. We heard yesterday, and I read this morning, that that a few members are mentioning a motion to vacate. I mean, do you think this is is putting McCarthy's speakership in, in peril? No. Uh, Dan Bishop mentioned it yesterday. And, you know, can you get into so many things with that? Who are you going to replace him with? Uh, he's now got Democrat support, which is uh, 
troubling to say the least. So, but no, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, you know, he wouldn't get the you wouldn't get the necessary votes to to put him out. And then who you put in here? I mean, who would you put in his place? We tried on in January. That's what the twenty of us did, and Jim Jordan didn't want it. Um, you know, Byron Donalds didn't get off the ground, and Andy Biggs the same way. So we just need people who, you know, to get involved in the political arena in in, in the, Washington today that, you know, don't have an agenda, don't really have any uh, axe to grind other than putting this country on a firm financial footing. And until we do that, it's going to be tough uh, to uh, to really get this country back on track. I think we can, but... You know, every dollar up here, the government is so expanded now. And as a military guy told me last night, he said, you know, we can't fight a war if we had to. The the ships that we're building, uh, most of them don't have uh, – and, and I, it's, this was hard for me to believe, but he said most of them are not functional. Uh, if and when China invades uh, Taiwan, we'll, we will be a paper tiger. And that's that's hard to stomach because they make the – semi-computer chip that goes in all of our automobiles so you know it's um it's just a winner we've gotten ourselves in a fix that we've, we've got to get out of at some point and we'll keep fighting to hopefully do that well and, and i hear the frustration in your voice and i know you to be a businessman who believes that debt could eventually lead to america's demise i share uh, that opinion you know that as well but but my my discouragement congressman and i'll, and I'll leave you with this my discouragement is that it seems to me there's just not an appetite. There's political speak, there's campaign rhetoric, but at the end of the day, neither party has the fortitude or backbone it takes to deal with the unbelievable amount of debt we've accumulated over the years. Is that kind of where you are? Is that what you sense in Washington? Well, it is because you have people campaigning on, we're going to do this, we're going to cut spending. Well, Every dollar spent up here has got an advocate, and boy, the the knives come out from the lobbyists. When we were doing the twenty of us did what we did in January, guess who I got the most calls from? Lobbyists. I don't blame them, but they you know get a percentage of what the government gives. But until we get government reined in and get people up here who are willing to go home, and and that's the only way to to describe it is people who are willing to say, look, we're going to take take a stand, and if we don't. Uh, if if the public opinion goes against us, well, send us home. Um, and I got a call yesterday from a huge uh, gas and oil company. But Joe Manchin's in this bill. Joe Manchin is getting a pass for his vote. It's just you talking about buying off votes. Joe Manchin's is getting permits for his for his gas line in West Virginia, and <clears throat> this affects South Carolina. And the group called and said, "Look, this." affects a lot of constituents in your district and you know the south carolina south carolina can directly benefit i said i can't do it the bill uh while it may help some in south carolina um we just i I can't do that the 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 bill is killing the country the bud light debacle i got another email from a big distributor we and i had a lot of people who over the anheuser bush and i said look y'all ought to just because it affects people in my district, I can't sit back and, and not publicize the fact that An, the, the wokeism with Anheuser-Busch, people ought to not buy it. I mean, you, you cut the, the, the dollars off. And um, so that's what you get. And um, that's, we're just going to have more people that are willing to do that. Otherwise, um, 
it, the debt's going to continue. It's a real number. And, uh, you know, you hear the figure 98000 for every man, woman, and child in this country. I would make the argument there's far more than that because Social Security, Highway Trust Fund uh, is pretty much going under. We're printing money to rob Peter to pay Paul with that. Well explained. Congressman, we appreciate your time. Appreciate all the work you've done. And um, don't get too discouraged because we need you up there fighting for fiscal sanity. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, you. Congressman Ralph Norman of Rock Hill, um, representing that uh, conservative district in a very conservative um, sort of way. I've heard Ralph, I mean, this will be a colorful way to explain it. I've heard Ralph describe to me, and Ralph and I go back a good bit. Ralph was actually, uh, you know, a candidate for lieutenant governor in 2010 when I ran until he decided, I think John Spratt's health began failing. Mick Mulvaney got a job eventually in the um, in the Trump administration that opened a kind of special election over there. Ralph ran and won that seat, formerly of the House of Representatives in South Carolina. Always been a budget hawk, been very consistent, kind of in the um, in the, in the vein of Mark Sanford, uh, drowned government in a bathtub. And I've heard you know Ralph referred to many times as kind of a hard ass, a little bit unreasonable when it comes to the budget constraints. You know, I don't he know. I'm really discouraged. Well, I mean, he's that. very discouraged. And, and, you know, I talked to Ralph's chief of staff last night a bit, and very discouraged because we had a bill passed. I mean, something happened that the Republicans say it couldn't happen, and that is they actually herded cats. And the membership voted for a bill called the Limit Save Grow Act. And it's a, um, once again, it's a fairly comprehensive bill. I mean, it's, it's pretty specific about. Um, some of the major priorities, and I mean, they obviously politically referred to as the Biden's inflationary policies. I mean, that's you know politics 101, but it did um, limit future spending in exchange for you know modest increase to the debt ceiling. The only thing I'm sure of today that whoever the next president of the United States is, I mean, I, I'll predict it's one of three people. I mean, that their names will be Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, or Joe Biden. I mean, that those are the most likely suspects to be president of the united states in 2024 when they take the oath of office this country will be 35 trillion dollars in debt but that's what we've settled on that this kicks the can uh to january of 2025 it allows the government to spend about four trillion dollars in deficit spending with 31.4 today i mean i think the debt ceiling bill i mean i've got the number in front of me here yeah 31.4 trillion dollars um that's when we bump into the debt ceiling this allows that number to grow to $35 trillion. So whoever the president is, now, now once again, uh, philosophically, and I'll go through some of these um, line items that I find most discouraging, um, the January 2025 date, uh, to, to me, it takes the issue off the table. I mean, we're not, who cares what Biden, DeSantis, or Trump think about um, the debt ceiling? Who cares about what they think about the federal debt? Um, I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, it, the, nobody will have any say so. I mean, it's January 2025. I mean, there's a reason uh, that's done for that time frame. Um, you know, and and I let, let's do this real quick, and then we'll take a call. Um, the Limit Save Grow Act that the Republicans passed with no Democrat support would have cut about 80 billion dollars uh, given to the IRS. R- remember, in the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRS was funded by about eighty billion. Remember that was the um, that was the bill that some Republicans helped with. The Mitt Romneys, Lindsey Graham's of the world, what I'll call the oh, moderate yeah. Republicans. You know the um, the ones that cross the aisles and work with the other party. Um, that that funded 
the IRS with an additional $80 billion. The Limit Save Grow Act took that money away from the IRS. Um, the, the higher 87,000 new IRS agents, um, the deal struck over the weekend, um, only about 1.38 billion will be rescinded. So 78 point, what, uh, five, two billion stay in the hands of the IRS. How is that a compromise? I mean, how, how do the Republicans declare that a victory? You had a bill passed by your membership that rescinded all 80 billion to hire the 87,000 additional IRS agents, you meet over the weekend and you rescind $1.38 billion of the $80 billion um, under the Limit Save Grow Act. The government would have, uh, there's a revocation process that happens in the government. It gets a little bit weedy if you try to explain it. But about 50 to $60 billion of the unused COVID-19 funding, um, because Biden says the pandemic is over, so why is the money still sitting there? But if you got COVID money, billions and billions and billions of dollars are sitting in banks around the country in the name of COVID relief. Uh, the pandemic is over. The Biden administration has, has announced the pandemic is over. Um, they shift that money back to commerce. I mean, commerce gets a windfall of about $22 billion. Here's something bothersome to me. Um, in the Limit, Save, Grow Act, uh, about $1.2 trillion trillion with a T, one trillion seconds was 32,000 years ago. So a trillion is almost an unfathomable number. So 1.2 trillion in green subsidies that were allocated in the Inflation Reduction Act in the um, in the Republican plan, that money goes away. Of the 1.2 trillion in subsidies that were granted in the Inflation Reduction Act goes away. That money is reestablished in this. That goes back to zero. So the $1.2 trillion in these green initiatives, and that's when Ralph's talking about China, because China's making all the solar panels. I mean, China's making all the components for green energy, but they're making 80% of the electric vehicle components. So that's a big windfall for the Chinese government. Um, if I wanted to be Limbaugh, say the Chacoms, you know how he referred to the Chinese government as the Chacoms. Um, you know, the student loan forgiveness plan stays in place. I do think that that's... Um, you know, the, the modest increase in, in welfare work requirements, they didn't include um, Medicaid. I was arguing or debating with a Democrat friend of mine last night about the, you know, the realities of Medicaid, the realities of Medicare. Um, some Democrats will argue the reason we're in this fix is the Trump tax cuts and the Bush tax cuts. Um, all I know is 2013 revenues to the federal government were $2.8 trillion. A decade later, they're north of $5 trillion. I mean, just think about that, guys. A trillion dollars is unfathomable. I mean, we, we, we think we comprehend what a trillion dollars is. We don't. I don't. You don't. None of us do. You can't, I mean, you just can't wrap your head around how many dollars $1 trillion is. And right now, the government is taking in about $5 trillion, a little north of $5 trillion, but they're spending about $6 trillion. So we're spent, we're running about a one trillion dollar deficit annually. We'll have three. We'll have four line items. Um, so two are for or entitlements. I mean, two are partially funded. Uh, we're paying the Social Security. We're paying into Medicare. But they're still line item at north of a trillion dollars. I mean, just just uh, once again, a trillion seconds ago was thirty two thousand years. The federal budget at the beginning of probably twenty twenty five 
Probably won't happen in four, but it'll happen in five for sure. We'll have four line items north of a trillion dollars. Social Security will be north of a trillion. Medicare will be north of a trillion. Medicaid will be north of a trillion. And interest on debt will be north of a trillion. I mean, just stomach that for a second. Once again, one trillion seconds, not days, not minutes, not hours, not months. One trillion seconds ago, there were saber-toothed tigers roaming the planet Earth. We think that there may have been a Tyrannosaurus Rex or two. Um, forget Jesus. I mean, that's only two or 2,500 years ago. We're talking about 32,000 years ago. I mean, Jesus was a concept. I mean, something written about in the Old Testament. And, and I'm talking about people of faith here. You know, um, B.C. and A.D., the only reason I use that is, you know, B.C. doesn't mean before Carolina, before Clemson. And it means before Christ. Pretty, pretty serious moment in history, right? I mean, world history, you know, defines time in relation to the birth of what some perceive as a savior, others as a great prophet. Nonetheless, that's about 2,000 years ago. A trillion seconds was 32,000 years ago. And we're spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have, and nobody is showing a willingness to deal with debt. It, it's absurd. It's mind-numbing to me how we've gotten here and how while nobody seems to be an alarmist about it. I mean, we're alarmed at what Bud Light has done. We're alarmed at what Target has done. We're alarmed at what North Face has done. We're alarmed at what our education has done. That's baby crap when it comes to what the debt is going to eventually do to the greatest nation man has ever known. We are going to eventually end up in a death spiral. It'll be our debt demise. And this is another reminder that people in Washington are more beholden to the process than they are the common sense way out, and that is to cut spending. And I've got Democrat friends who say, this is about the Trump tax cuts. This is about the Bush tax cuts. All I know is the numbers don't lie. Facts are stubborn things. In 2013, revenue to the federal government was $2.8 trillion. Today, it's over $5 trillion. Revenue ain't the problem. Stop saying that. That's an asinine argument to make. It's an absurd argument to make. The government has an abundance of revenue, an unfathomable amount of revenue, and they spend more every single year. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. So the Limit Save Grow Act, once again, a fairly comprehensive and entailed bill that would um, cut major portions. Now, now I'm going to be a Republican here for a second. In the Biden's inflationary agenda, um, it would limit future spending in exchange for, uh, you know, some would call modest increases to the raising of the debt ceiling. That's not where we are. I mean, forget the 99-page bill. I mean, to me, there's no win here for Republicans. Well, let me back up. There, there probably is a win. Ask Rev asked during the break, is there anything is to there like anything about good? this? Um, Thomas Massey, Republican from Kentucky, said on several occasions that he was not going to procedurally hold up a big vote. In other words, I'm not going to you know, basically block it in the Rules Committee. I'm going to allow it to go to the full floor. They'll vote probably tonight. Uh, a lot of Democrats will join some Republicans, and it will pass. Interesting, Ralph, just, I mean, that's a foregone conclusion that it's going to pass. But in the bill, Massey has um, some language. Now, now, once again, they'll probably argue or litigate some of the language, but Massey has included in this bill that if the Congress can't appropriate as it 
um, is constitutionally bound. By that, I mean the 12 subcommittees, the appropriating committees, um, working through the budget, Actually passing doing the budget, a budget. Yeah. doing a budget. They're do, doing a budget. I mean, that's, I was trying to be a little more sophisticated than that. But in <laughs> essence, do a budget the way a budget doing is their supposed job, to be. Basically. Doing their job. If they don't do that and defer to a continuing resolution, that would come with a 1% spending cut across the board of the previous year's budget. Fooey. I don't buy that. I mean, I've not seen the language. Because that, that sounds good. Well, why I mean, that, do you say fooey? Well, I mean, I just don't buy They'll it. They'll just never do I, it? I think it's more of a handshake than it is. Well, I mean, that, that, you know, and, and Speaker Gingrich is supporting uh, th- this, this deal, so to speak. But I think Gingrich, and uh, New Gingrich is not a naive man. I mean, he was Speaker of the House in the 90s, worked with Clinton, excuse me, the, yeah, the 90s, and worked with Clinton. Um, but, but I think, you know, Dan Bishop, um, congressman from North Carolina, who is pretty well versed on this budget and juxtaposed to the bill the Republicans passed, I mean, he's basically said that a lot of what you're assuming is just that. I mean, it's an assumption. It's a handshake that there is no um, authority given to um, some of the deal that the speaker made. And I, once again, I need to see the language and how committed to the language the bill is. Because once again, if Massey has language in there that bounds Congress to budget as Congress should budget, that's that's kind of a win for the Republicans. And if they don't budget the continuing, if they go to continuing resolution route, and which is what they've done, continue with, we don't budget. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Congress doesn't budget that they operate on omnibus bills and continuing resolutions. And if they end up in a CR, that comes with a 1% across the board spending cut of the previous year's um, spending. But but the Democrats have so many wins in here. But I mean, they get 78 of the 80 million, you know, that was going to the billion. IRS. Billion. I'm sorry, that goes to the IRS. The 1.2 trillion in the Inflation Reduction Act that goes to green energy. I mean, all that stays in place. That was carved out of the Limit Save um, Grow Act. It just seems to me, guys, I'm going to tell you what happened. You ready? The lobbyists got a hold of some of the Republicans, and the Republicans got nervous and didn't want any part of that. It's going to be hard to cut spending because, once again, the only way to cut spending at the federal level is to tell lobbyists no. And lobbyists are fundraisers, and that's how you stay in office. And I got to believe there are a lot of conversations between lobbyists, big business, and elected officials. Well, Congressman Norman talked about how many calls well, he I mean, received. But, but think of this, guys. If you are a Republican, if you are a but he's been a hawk. I mean, he's been very consistent in his budget hawking view. But but if you're a member of Congress and you're a Republican, and a lobbyist calls, and another lobbyist, and another lobbyist, and a and a big business calls, and another big business, and another big business. And they basically say, we can guarantee you no primary opponent. And we know how gerrymandered politics has become anyway. I mean, the majority of races are won in primaries. That These are supermajority Democrat districts. These are supermajority Republican districts. But if you're a member of Congress and you like being a member of Congress and you get three or four or five or six calls from consultants and big business who says, hey, we really need this bill to pass. I mean, we need this compromise to pass uh, and you kind of like being a member of Congress, and we have a lot more ability than most to make sure you stay a member of Congress, that normally gets your attention. That's not doing your job. I mean, rest assured, I'm not equating that with doing your job. In fact, that's shirking your responsibility. But but do you want to do right by the American people, or do you want to stay as a member of Congress? I think most would rather be a member of Congress than do right by 
the American people. My discouragement is we passed a bill. I mean, the Republicans herded cats and passed a bill, a good bill, that made some significant changes to appropriations, made some pretty serious cuts to, to our federal outlays. And when, you know, Republicans were asked to stand tall, they blinked, which is what historically they've done in, in my generation. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, guys. They've done this forever. Remember when the Tea Party took over in 2010 and they passed the sequestration? And every year since then, they voted to blow out the caps. So it doesn't matter what they pass, they're going to blow them out. It just amazes me how easy. The government can lie to the American people, and they, they buy it. I mean, forever now, they've been telling people on Social Security and veterans' benefits, you're not going to get your check. You're not going to get your check. And then I told the guys at work, they were saying, oh, my mom and dad's worried, man. They're, they're sick. They're worried. They're not. I said, tell them not to worry. Look at your bank account. <clears throat> I said, they're going to change this date from the first probably to the 5th or the 10th. And they said, how do you know that? I said, I just got an ACH notification on my retirement from the military. I, about seven days out, they do a, you know automated clearinghouse notification that my retirement check's going into my account. <clears throat> so that's, that's mandatory spending. But they've lied to the American people so much that they believe them. So whatever they do, you know, I was reading a report by the CBO and the uh, GAO. By 2050, the government will be twice the size of the economy. Think about that. 50, 2050, what's that, 25, 30 years? It'll be twice the size of the American economy. They, they don't care. They turned every safety net into a king-size adjustable bed. And they expect the American people to keep going through it. And like I've always said, things will keep going until they can't. I just feel bad for my grandchildren and their children because they're going to end up modern-day slaves again. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. And, and it really goes, I mean, I'll revert back to the debate we had last week or the week before about the school district. I mean, the school district is basically asking for permission. They're not taking anything that they're asking for permission. The school board members have the authority to vote and take $14.3 trillion out of the private sector, transfer that into the local school board. Uh, maybe they need the money, maybe they don't. But Joe just told you, and for 16 consecutive quarters, the government has grown 25% faster than the private sector. I mean, imagine that. And you can say, well, that's an anomaly. I mean, the anomaly is, you know, uh, COVID and how involved the government got in the affairs of the private sector. Um, well, I mean, a lot of the money made its way to the private sector. We had 5.6% GDP growth in one quarter after COVID because we infused so much liquidity into the economy. So it cuts both ways. And, and that's where I land. I mean, I can complicate this as much as you choose to. But at the end of the day, I go back to my theory, and I wish you'd remember this, and I wish you'd tell others about this. When you take a single dollar 
out of the private sector and transfer it to the public sector, you make the economy smaller and you grow government. I mean, there is no alternative scenario. That is a factoid. We can debate where the money needs to go, how much education needs, how much infrastructure needs. Um, should Republicans be in charge? Should Democrats be in charge? The macro of all macros is our transferring of assets and resources from the private sector into the public sector. And we wonder, we look at historical analysis and we say, wow, I mean, have we industrialized ourselves to capacity? Have we innovated ourselves to capacity? Is the entrepreneurial spirit dead in America? But to some degree it is. I think government's the reason we don't have as many entrepreneurs. I think about my dad starting a business in 1963. I wonder if my dad, my dad was the ultimate cowboy. I mean, my dad didn't like authority, didn't like working for anybody. But I wonder today if my dad would be willing to take the risk that he was willing to take in 1963. I think my dad would look at the government as kind of the opposition. I mean, they're not here to help. They're here to hurt that they're not here to advantage, they're here to disadvantage. They're not here to make sure I get my fair share. They're here to make sure they get more than their fair share. I mean, that's the mindset that we're dealing with today. And you can say it's only a million dollars. I mean, it's only a, a three-mil tax increase. I mean, it's only, you know, getting teachers another $5,000 a year. But, but in the macro, every dollar that you take from the private sector to fund government, you buy, I mean, just by sheer reality, you make the private sector smaller and you grow government. And Republicans defend that. The party of limited government defends making government bigger. And, and I don't understand that. And I was debating, once again, a good Democrat friend of mine, one of the most sincere souls in my life. And I find it to be good and decent, moral, ethical, everything you'd want and, and, a, and a good friend. But, but he said, you know, the combination of entitlement spending and, and, the, and the Trump tax cuts. Well, in 2013, the federal government took in $2.8 trillion in revenue. Today, they take in over $5 trillion in revenue. So there's been a $2.2 trillion increase in revenue. And it's not enough. They need another trillion. And the debt, I mean, where, where does the government get its money to fund the debt service? From the private sector. So really and truly, the government is operating on $6 trillion, that they're taking in $5 trillion, but they're, they're, they're getting an IOU from the private sector for the other trillion. Now, but the government doesn't have the money to pay back the, the debt. I mean, they're running a trillion-dollar deficit annually. It'll be north of a trillion. It's about, I'm, I'm misrepresenting that. It's not a trillion yet. But when the reset, when the refinancing of the, ah, the latest three batches of bonds, it goes from an average finance charge of two and a quarter to about, what, four and a half-ish, maybe five. I mean, that gets the, the interest on debt north of a trillion dollars. I mean, and, and once again, the, the, a trillion dollars is unfathomable. The amount, you can't comprehend it. I mean, a million dollars and a billion dollars and a trillion dollars. I mean, a trillion's real money, guys. I mean, it, it really and truly is. You know, Bill Gates is a billionaire and Peter Thiel's a billionaire. You know, they have a hundred billion dollars. A, tr a trillion is an unfathomable amount of money, and we're spending that much every year that we don't have, and governments all across the country are saying, we need more. We don't have enough. The school district says, we don't have enough. The local um, county council, we don't have enough. The city council, we don't have enough. The state, we don't have enough. The federal government, we don't have enough. Well, the federal government has the luxury where they don't have enough to go print enough. 
We don't have enough to pay the bills. We'll just print some. I mean, just print another trillion bucks. You know, we'll buy back some of the bonds. It's fiscal insanity. And, and I don't know what the number is in education. I don't know what the number is in infrastructure. I don't know what the number is on the Fed's balance sheet. But, but I do know this, and it's undeniable, that when the government asks the private sector for more of its money, the private sector becomes less likely to grow. And I think we passed the tipping point. And here's the dirty secret. The only way to pay back the debt is to generate economic activity, to spur economic growth. How do you do that with more regulation, more stipulation, more taxation? It's impossible. There's no example in human history of more taxes leading to a more prosperous economy. And I get teachers, well, it's about educating the young people. It's about making a better community. I accept that. I appreciate that. But at the end of the day, the only place you get your money is the private sector. And when you take more of the private sector's money, it's less likely that the private sector grows to the point of being able to afford however much money um, you need on the other side. You want to be real provocative in the 8 o'clock hour? You, you want to piss a lot of people off at the 8 o'clock hour? Let me ask you this question that will take our break, Josh. Are teachers full-time employees? I mean, I don't say that disparage. I don't say that to insult. Are teachers full-time employees? You'll have to explain what you well, mean And I'll that. do that in the 8 o'clock hour. Done a lot of work over the weekend. It's amazing what happens on Memorial Day when it rains from daylight to dark. <laughs> it's amazing what happens when you don't sip a cold beer over Memorial Day weekend. Because Memorial Day weekend is kind of the kickoff of summer. And the kickoff of summer, I mean, if you're a good Baptist, you hide your beer, but you drink your beer nonetheless. <laughs> And, um, and not being able to do that. Instead, you go on Amazon and buy stuff that you don't really, don't, you don't really need. 843-661-0937. Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, education in the 8 o'clock Well, I know what hour. you did over your Memorial Day weekend. You figured out how to save money on your cable and streaming bills. So, so I could buy my wife more rugs and sofas. If you come there to you our go. house and like our sofa, give it six months. <laughs> It'll be for sale. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. couple of callers held on during the break. Let's be respectful of their time and go there. David in Florence, good morning. Morning, y'all. Hey, first of all, appreciate you giving us a voice. Secondly, I'm looking at the list of the committee members that passed that, that boondoggle yesterday. It, it passed 7 to 6 in the Rules Committee. All of those were Republicans. Only two Republicans voted against it, and that was Norman and Chip Roy. Four of the five minority members voted against it. So, anyway, I just wanted to give a list of the, the people that voted for it. was Burgess, uh, Ressenthaler, uh, Fischenbach, uh, Massey, Huchin, Langworthy, and Cole. All those are, are traitors to us. So I just wanted, wanted to bring that out there appreciate it thank you sir i was concerned yesterday when i read i mean i've played politics so i understand to some degree how the game is played and i was worried about massey in all honesty give the democrats some credit for playing chess when they said we'll leave the remember i've argued that the the congress doesn't appropriate in typical budget fashion any longer we don't budget we don't have the 12 subcommittees that allocate funding per you know, department per uh, segment of the segment of the government economy, but they left in the thing that Massey was so supportive of, and that is if we don't budget, 
but defer to a continuing resolution, um, a one percent a one percent spending cut happens uh, is activated upon not budgeting, but rather the continuing resolution. And they left that in there to get Massey's vote. Now, do they fundamentally obligate themselves to that? I don't know. I mean, I don't know how stringent that language is. Um, I've not read the 99 pages. I read probably 30 or 40 of the 99 pages. And there's a couple of um, summaries that I read yesterday. But Massey was the swing vote. And Massey fancies himself as kind of a libertarian. But, but he has said historically, and this is important, he has said that he doesn't want the procedural to get in the way of big issues. In other words, not allowing it out of the rules committee does not force the full body to take a vote, yay or nay. So when Massey said that, and when I saw the language left in the um, the compromising version, and I'm not talking about the um, the Limit, Save, and Grow Act. I'm talking about the compromise that McCarthy and the Biden crowd made over the weekend. I found it odd that that was left in there until I realized Thomas Massey was the one that wanted that in there. And that's basically the Democrats playing chess, getting Massey on board, knowing that he's the guy that said, I don't want to be the procedural guy. I don't want to be the one that, that blocks things from happening because you can advantage yourself. Remember during the, uh, the McCarthy speakership election when the Freedom Caucus demanded so many people on the Rules Committee? And, and a lot of you were like, well, the Rules Committee? I mean, well, I want to be on the Ways and Means of the Finance Committee. I don't want to be on the Rules Committee. Well, you found out why. And had Massey stuck with, with um, you know, uh, Chip Roy and Ralph Norman, it would not have come out of Rules Committee. But, but once again, I think the Democrats did a good job in politicking Thomas Massey by leaving something near and dear to him in the bill. I mean, that's the way I would have played it. I mean, if I'm a Democrat, no, and full this bill, they may not ever do that or get they, there. They, right? They'll never do that. I mean, they're not going to do that. Do you really believe that they're going to go back to 12 subcommittees in budget and not operating a continuing resolution? And if that happens, I mean, a lot, we're marrying ourselves to about 18 months of bill. The, the, the only thing I'm sure of is the next president of the United States will inherit somewhere in the neighborhood of a $35 trillion deficit. That's where we're going um, to end up. 843-661-0937. Hey, isn't that similar to something they did, the Democrats did, in their playing chess and strategy to Joe Manchin to get him to vote for that sure. Inflation Reduction Act? Sure. Well, they did it in this. They've got this um this permitting that, that is exclusive to some of the energy assets in West Virginia. Remember the Cornhusker kickback? Remember Obamacare? Yeah, there was a Nebraska uh, well, was a senator. It was what Bob Nelson, and Nelson's from Florida. But anyway, there, there was a senator in Nebraska that that needed um ethanol subsidies, and the Obama administration didn't support ethanol subsidies, but they wanted Obamacare to pass, and they needed his vote. That's the way it's played. But you know, you don't like it. I don't like it. I wish it weren't the case. But but the Democrats, and it's not Joe Biden. I mean, both Joe Biden is a senile old man. I mean, Biden is not leading the charge in negotiation. I mean, this is probably Ron Klain and some of the other Obama acolytes. I mean, they're at work, and we've said it before. I think Trump is exactly right. These are shrewd, smart people. I mean, Joe Biden's probably shrewd. He's not very smart, and he's demented. So it's not that Biden is in a room with McCarthy, and they're mano a mano. I do believe that Newt and Clinton dealt that way. I think Tip and Ronald Reagan probably dealt that way. I think Tip had a lot of respect for Reagan. Reagan probably had a lot of respect for Tip O'Neill. Same with Newt and Bill Clinton. 
But I mean, do you really believe that Joe Biden is sitting across? Joe Biden announced he's running for president and has had zero campaign appearance. <laughs> I would imagine that, guys. The press Joe, secretary was asked yesterday if he will do any campaign, any, you know, campaign rallies or whatever. She wouldn't answer. Well, I mean, the, the better. I'm not going to address that from the podium. The less we hear and see of Joe Biden, the better chance he has to win. <laughs> it worked for him before. Because, I mean, if you see and hear Joe Biden, you realize that he is in significant cognitive decline and does not have the intellectual wherewithal to do the job. So when it sounds like that Biden and McCarthy got together over the weekend, I mean, there, there's somebody probably named Ron Klain across the table, and I know Klain's not his um his chief of staff any longer. But but I mean, Ron Klain didn't all of a sudden take a job at teaching Sunday school at one of these non-denominational churches. I can assure you of that. Klain is still intimately involved in the Obama legacy. This is part of the Obama legacy, so Klain is probably uh, doing some heavy lifting on behalf of the Biden administration let's go to the phone tony in calhoun county listening to wtqs in orangeburg good morning tony good morning um ken you know how the epa seems to be all you know thinking that wetlands are all that important and they're you know getting in the way of human beings doing their normal business trying to put buildings up so they want to tear down human infrastructure and restore the wetlands to wetlands right that's that's important to them so why don't they start a little closer to home? Um, the APA offices in Washington, D.C. are built on swamps. That's why it's called a swamp. All of D.C. is a swamp, literally. So when is the EPA going to tear down every federal building in D.C., raise it to the ground, remove all the man-made stuff, and restore the wetlands to its natural habitat? That's When are they going to do that? I would predict never. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to revert back to this um to this story I read over the weekend. It's not a story I read. It is a um it is an aggregating of information because of a rainy Memorial Day weekend that didn't let me sit on the beach and drink beer and listen to Bruce Springsteen. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to sit beside my wife. She doesn't like Springsteen, but she'll tolerate it. Um she reads a book. I listen to Bruce. Um, I have a few cold adult beverages, enjoy the sun, the beginning of summer. But uh, Mother Nature had other plans. It was rainy and windy and and, uh, and a bit pissy, to be honest with you, as far as the weather goes. Yeah. Um, and then you start reading and you take uh, yeah, I'm bad about You start it. plundering. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and here I am. I'll say, grab my pen here real quick, and I'll start adding these numbers together. That can't be right. I think it is right. It is right. I mean, good land. So I go another leg and another leg and another leg. And I ended up asking this question. And I mean this with all due respect, because I've said and I'll say again, if I were in a position of power and education was under my control, good teachers would love me because good teachers would make more money than they've ever made in their lives. And bad teachers would be finding other jobs. I mean, that's the way I would um, run education. Now, is it that simple? Of course not. I mean, it's far more complicated than that. But we've debated the funding of education. Dr. Rich O'Malley, who I think is a very sound financial-minded uh, administrator, was in here defending why he believes it's worthy for we, the people, to contribute um, a little more of our hard-earned money to better educating young kids in Florence District 1. So, you know, I mean, I, I just think about these things. This busy head syndrome kicks in. And I went to the NEA website, National Education Association, 
And I wanted to know what what is the average teacher's salary in America? It's sixty six thousand seven hundred forty five. The state average is about fifty seven thousand. So we're lagging the national average. But as Representative Jordan, I think, said one day, a couple of weeks back, we've caught up with the Southeast. I mean, we're kind of on par with what teachers make in in the Southeast. Now, you can say, yeah, but we haven't caught up nationally. Well, a school teacher in New York needs to make more. I mean, the, you know, the cost of living in New York is a good bit more. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually has it at 67680 So they have it about $1,000 more than the National Education Association. Um, I asked Rev during the break, what, what do you think the median income for a, um, you know, a, a college graduate is? And he said 65 is actually 70. When you ask teachers what they believe they should make, they say 80. So, so I mean, they, they would be a college-educated professional um, making about the median. I mean, they're making a little less. So you could argue the median income of college-educated professionals is 70. The teachers are a little bit underpaid when it comes to, you know, college-educated professionals. Uh, I don't know what teachers should make. But, but I do know this, that there, there's a very unique part of being a teacher. Forget the stagnant proficiencies. For, forget the, um, the realities of public education. And I'll go to administrators in just a second because I've, I've got some numbers here compiled. I actually got about four stories that I put together. But 85% of teachers in America today operate on what they call a 190-day contract year. I mean, they signed a year-to-year contract. Not all. But about 85% of teachers in America today sign a 190-day contract year. It, it normally has about 10 to 15 days, some 20 days of paid leave. The average teacher works 175 work days a year. Hold on to that. 175 work days a year. The average private sector employee, forget government workers. I mean, we're talking about teachers here. The average teacher, and I'm talking about not just the average, 85 percent of teachers sign a year-to-year contract and they agree to work 190 days and they get about 15 days of paid leave so they are working 175 days a year the average private sector employee per the national bureau of labor and statistics works 235 work days a year so it's i mean let's be honest guys i mean this is not disparaging teachers by any because i wouldn't do the job i mean i'd be I'd be probably in prison. I mean, Johnny would be in the hospital and I'd be in prison or I'd be in prison and Johnny would be, uh, you know, I'd be in the hospital and Johnny be in prison. Uh, one or the other, depending on what grade it is and whether you played linebacker or not, because I'm getting a few years on me. Um, but, but it, is it, is it fair? I mean, Rev, I'm asking you, I'll put you on the spot here. Okay. So teachers work on average 12 weeks, less 60 work days, 12 weeks, less then most full-time employees, FTEs, work uh, salaried employees in the private sector. I mean, is it, it? Surely that's a distinguishable difference that we've got to realize and accept as you know part of the debate, right? Sure, because you could consider that. I mean, if you're counting PTO and days off, right? I'm counting PTOs and days off with the private sector, right? They, you know, they they five times fifty-two still, what, is two hundred forty 40 or fifty day difference then it'll be 60 days 60 days 60 days from 175 okay. to 235 yeah that five day work week there's six excuse me 12 weeks so the private sector employee is working on average 12 weeks more than a school teacher 
should a school teacher be categorized as a full-time employee? I mean, the benefits package. I mean, the, and here's where it gets a little bit questionable. Um, this is why teachers' benefits are so expensive. I mean, it really and truly is because we are we're paying them on a 190-day contract. They get 15 uh, PTOs, personal time off. Um, it gets them to about 175 days of actual work. And I understand I'm at home grading papers. You know, I, I'm doing this on the weekend. I get it. I mean, I, I would imagine, believe it or not, there's some people in the private sector that work a little overtime and do things on their laptop at home um, that don't hit the books per se when it comes to um, how they're paid or how they're not. But schools pay full year benefits for people agreeing to work 190 days, actually working 175 days. Surely that's got to be part of the debate. I mean, we've, we've got to allow that to be accepted as a just a, a difference in general. And and I guess you know I understand the um the elected official who's nervous about going down that road because teachers get real organized, they get real intense, that they they're they're very loyal to their profession. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I don't have any problem paying a good teacher sixty five seventy grand a year to work one hundred ninety days if they're doing a good job. But the benefits plan is what I'm talking about. It's the only occupation I can find where the benefits plan is calculated on a on a full-year basis. In other words, we're giving benefits. The person working at Public Works at the county is working as you and I do. I mean, they, they, you know, they don't get, that they're not signing 190-day contracts, that they're working uh, at the pleasure of someone. It would be very similar. I mean, the benefits and retirement, the retirement and, and insurance is different. We've talked about that in the public and private sector, but they're not working on 190-day contracts. I mean, the teachers are exclusive to this 190-day contract. So the guy driving the road plow for Sumter County or Orangeburg County, that uh, they're operating in a very similar fashion to you and I. They're probably working about 235 days a year. I mean, 50 times 50, uh, five times 52 is what, 260? So you're getting about 20, 25 days in, you know, paid vacation, uh, paid personal days, paid sick days. However, they calculate that. The, the average private sector workers working 235. The average, um, the average road plow operator at Public Works is probably working about 235. The teachers are working 12 weeks less than private sector workers or many public sector workers, but their benefits package is calculated as an FTE, as a full-time employee. And that's why it's so expensive. And that's why we're digging a $27.5 billion hole in our state budget when it comes to unfunded liabilities relating to the state retirement plan. I'm not I'm not here to disparage teachers. Please understand. But 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 you you gotta I mean can't we accept being critical? I mean, that, that's bizarre to me, that, that politicians, certain groups are off limits in being critical of. How dare you criticize a pastor? How dare you criticize a nurse? How dare you criticize a member of the military? How dare you criticize a teacher? Well, I mean, you know what I'd res- respond with? How dare you criticize a construction worker? How dare you criticize a, a truck driver? How dare you criticize a roofer? How dare you criticize a textile worker? How dare you criticize an assembly line worker? I mean, are some of these jobs more important? and less suspect to criticism than another? I mean, it, it, what a nurse does every day, what a teacher does every day is important. It's to be respected. It's to be compensated fairly. But but a truck driver's different? A construction worker's different? 
No, the custodian at the school district doesn't deserve the same consideration as the teacher. That the person putting the shingles on a hundred day, you know, southern afternoon, they don't deserve the same respect and consideration that teachers do. But it's almost like these groups that curry government favor are a little exclusive. They're, they're to be treated a little differently than some of the others. Not by me. 843-661-0937. You like Take a break. It well, I mean, it is what it is. Am I wrong? No. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Take a break. Back in a few. So real quick, does Van Halen deserve consideration as the greatest American rock and roll band ever? Uh, based from our discussion yesterday, later in the day, that is the name I wish I'd thought of. When, yeah. you, were, when you asked the question about CCR. and I'm I, not saying they are. Right. But, but certainly Van Halen yep. has a special place in American rock and roll. Darn right. Um, they ain't the Beatles, ain't the Stones, but name an American band that has been more impactful than Van Halen. Um, I can't think of one. I, I really didn't. I mean, I, I'm thinking about the, the entirety of what they are now. I mean, they, they were a big stage act, and I mean, they, they were kind of the segue. You said this before. Garth and Alabama were the segue from country to pop. On the other end of the rock spectrum, you got metal, and then you've got rock and roll, and Van Halen kind of had it. I mean, they would have been yeah. more rock and roll rock than, and than metal, but they were kind of, I mean, they, they were in, they were a big deal. I mean, they, they were, I'll tell you this, they were a big-ass deal. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an extra exclamation mm-hmm. of significance. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, I, I completely despise um, what public edu- education has co- come to, um, and especially because it really stands in direct contrast of what Western culture and Christianity stands for. Um, it supports this notion of it takes a village to raise a child. Um, but can that's an African proverb that's based in African communalism. And Western culture and Christianity um, values the individual, and it places the responsibility um, specifically on fathers to raise their children. Um, and we can go to Ephesians and uh, Paul's letter to them and quote it very directly that God places uh, responsibility on us men. He doesn't give it to the women. He doesn't give it to the mothers. He gives it to us. But Ken, what's more important when we talk about this discussion? Could you take a teacher in the best school district, the best teacher in the best school district in Connecticut, and put them at Wallace Gregg, and they perform just as well? The most important thing when, when deciding education for your child is picking who the fellow students are, um, because if you've got a good basis of students, um, you can have a productive classroom. Um, you know, nobody's going to like my ideas on how to fix education. Um, one, I think you should drop the drop out age to zero. Um, if a parent and a child doesn't want to be there, they shouldn't be there. And we should pull them out of education and allow the children that want to be there to be there so they don't be disruptive. Um, there's also, you know, certain other measures that would just have to be taken to, to fix this issue. But the most important thing is who your child is in a classroom with that determines um, how well that education process occurs. Um, and until we also discuss that portion of it, um, you know, a teacher could be the best in the world, but if um, she's got a bunch of kids of a bunch of single moms who don't care, um, th- that teacher is going to perform poorly. 
Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jim. When a school district asks permission to raise taxes, they're asking for more money. I mean, I understand the philosophy Jim's articulating. And and go back. I'll try to do this over the um, over the evening and be back better prepared tomorrow. I mean, the, some of the great thinkers in history have had a lot to say about public education. Aristotle had a lot to say about public education. Imagine the concept of public education in Aristotle's days. Washington, not only George Washington. Um, Jefferson obviously had a lot to say about public education. Um, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton. I mean, you know, one of the great debates in early American history, maybe Bolt can opine on this uh, more uh, accurately than I can, but there, there were a lot of musings by some of our founders about the role of education, the role of government in funding education. The point I tried to make earlier, the point I'll reiterate, and I'm not, once again, I'm, I don't have any, any problem with teachers. I mean, I, I admire, respect, revere, don't want any part of what they do, but, but there's a reality. And the reality is that, that, you know, we're arguing about money. We're arguing about pay. Um, the, the average teacher in South Carolina is making about $57,000 a year. That's about $10,000 less than the average teacher all across the country. The median college-educated professional makes about seventy grand a year. That's, you know, teachers are underpaid by that metric. But, but you can have the debate and not accept that 85% of teachers in America today sign a 190-day contract that requires them to work an average of 175 days. The average private sector employee works 235 work days. Now, but that's after vacation, after sick leave, after PTO. That's 12 weeks. But that's 12 five-day work weeks. Are, Are we not going to accept that as part of the debate? I mean, if the teacher's done such a good job to spook the political body, that we can't make that part of the discussion. Um, the absurdity of that, if that's where we are, I'm not saying teachers are overpaid or underpaid. I don't know how much teachers should make, but I do know that 85% of teachers are agreeing to work 175 days a year and people in the private sector work 235 days. So to suggest that somebody working in the private sector making 60 grand a year working 235 days is not different than a teacher working 175 days a year making the same salary. I mean, that's an absurd argument to make, and you're just a cheerleader. I mean, you're an advocate. You're not a serious person that, that deserves to be at a table for a serious debate about education. And I, got, I mean, Jim's talking a lot about the, philo- the philosophy of, of education, the role of government. I'm talking about the funding of education. And, and I've said it before, and I'll say it till the day I die. When you ask for more money, to fund government, you make it less likely that the economy grows and prospers. That's just to start reality. There is no if, and, or but to that. When you confiscate money from the private sector to fund a government program, the likelihood of that economy growing becomes less. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Hey there, you're on the air. Hey. Uh, Ken, the reason I would argue that teachers make $20,000 less is is for three reasons, the June, July, and August. But the marketplace has decided they make $20,000 less. You know, you if you're a teacher and you want to be with your kids and you need a second job, maybe the best thing to do is to be where your kids are. And my point is, is, is just like everything, like a fireman, 
if they have less firemen, they don't do the job anymore, you have to raise the wages. The marketplace decides everybody's salary. You know, and I guess... But you don't trust the marketplace in the public sector, do you? Well, I mean, they have to, at some point... You know, I think I'm, I'm more. The the bigger question is how many, how much more administration do we have versus teachers? I mean, if you look at the charter schools that are successful, you know, everybody's against the charter school now because the people that go to charter schools, if it's athletics or whatever, they want to go. Everybody's providing their own transportation. You know, nobody talks about that. You know, they, well, they're recruiting. Well, they, they don't have any buses. They're not going to pick you up, you, you know, and they do it for significantly less because all they get is the state portion of funding. They don't get the district. But, the, but so Nick, but they, Nick let, let's go back to the capitalism part you're talking about, the marketplace. So, so right now, teachers in South Carolina make fifty six or $7,000 a year. The median income for a college-educated professional is seventy grand. That's across the country. So they're making about $13,000 less. Now, across America, they're only making about $3,000 less. The median salary for teachers across the country is about $67,000. So, so, so the, the school district says we need more money to pay teachers a, a more um, lucrative salary. That's not market forces. I mean, that's a school board asking for a tax increase to pay teachers more, why? Well, I, I'm riding down through Columbia, and I see billboards that say, come work for Richland School District 1, and we'll give you a $3,000 signing bonus because they have a shortage of teachers, and that's the marketplace. think that, I mean, I'm not arguing any position that they need the money. Don't mistake. I understand what you're saying. But I mean, I accept what you're saying. Are the classes getting, I mean, if you have less teachers, they're going to have to get bigger classes. If they if they teach more kids, shouldn't they be compensated for it? But, I mean, wouldn't you argue I mean, that some of that is because we've not allowed choice and competition in the marketplace oh, of education? I mean, that one, oh, one, of the, one, one of the most principles component of capitalism would be choice and competition, and, and, and public education has done a pretty good job of neutering any choice or competition. Over the, I mean, we're getting there now. I mean, I think, we, you know, a lot of the Seinfeld crowd is waking up and say, you know, we're not adequately educating young people in America any longer. The proficiency scores show that. So we're beginning to go down the road of choice and competition. But historically, public education has done a marvelous job of, of stopping choice and competition from the marketplace of public education. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, the point is, to me, you know, they make less money because they don't work the summers. And then you question, well, we shouldn't pay them less because they don't work the summers. Well, they're making less. You know, you've already demonstrated that in your numbers. Well, I mean, the, the, well, I mean, it's, stick and, with and, me. So, so, so the the median income for teachers in America is sixty seven thousand six hundred eighty dollars. The median income for college graduates in all fields is seventy grand. So they're fairly consistent. They're at about sixty-eight grand. The median income for college graduates is seventy grand. So they're making about the same salary on a hundred and seventy-five year or hundred and seventy-five day work week. But they've also paid the same amount of tuition 
at the University of South Carolina to be a teacher as they did to go to the Darla Moore School or the College of Engineering. You know, their investment was the same to make less money, too. And my point is, as part of that is the deal to have the summers off. And that's the deal. You know, I think our real problem is that nobody in the 60s, when they set up pensions, could the actuary tables are so out of whack. Well, see, that's you the know, point that's I'm making, Nick, when, when you, and, I, and I'm pretty good at this. When you look at the teacher benefits plans, that's why they're so costly. We're, 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 we're benefiting teachers as if they're working 235 days when in actuality they're working 175 and, and you, you got kind of a, um, a chart or a pie chart. Well, it'd be a graph that, that says, what is this teacher costing me per day of employment? And, 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 you know, it's teachers cost the taxpayer a lot more when it comes to the benefits package because it's not extrapolated over 235 day work week or work year, but rather 175 day. Let me ask you a question. I've often thought about this. If you had, and I'm not a proponent of this, a single payer system, how much is health care really in that? See, I'm not privileged that to that information. I mean, I'd have to get my hands on that data um, to know. I don't know. I mean, I think teachers contribute 9% of their salary to retirement. I think the um, the government matches that by eleven or twelve or thirteen uh, percent. I think it's about eleven or twelve percent. But when it comes to you know the um, the healthcare cost, I don't. I've never seen that data. I don't know those numbers. So my question was: See, I've always thought that what we needed was the government to say we're going to pay three thousand dollars for every Social Security card. I'm with you. I've always felt that's a better way to do it. If you're one year old or you're ninety nine years old, and we're going to make um, in, uh, insurance companies come up with $3,000 policies. If you want more coverage, you're welcome to pay for more coverage. Bingo. And, and then if you're a doctor and you can, I know you want me to do your uh, heart bypass, but I don't work with Aetna insurance. If you'll pay the, the, the $300 change for mid-year change and go to Blue Cross, I'll be glad to do it because my deals with Blue Cross. That's the marketplace. That you get that, doctor's that, choices. Correct. You let, you know. I just that's what I've always thought. But you know, I you know, like I said before, I don't think a lot of times they're into solving problems. They're just into retaining power in Washington. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. We got to take a break. That's kind of an interesting concept, and I've thought a lot about this. I had someone tell me one day we were debating higher education, and he and he and he basically said, I'm paraphrasing, not too loosely. He said every kid should have an opportunity to attend college. Every kid shouldn't have an opportunity to go to Walford or Furman. We're talking about South Carolina, privately funded institutions, really expensive colleges. Eh, okay, I, I'm with you. Every kid deserves a chance to better themselves by gaining a college education and degree. But does every kid deserve to go to one of the most expensive colleges in South Carolina, that being Walford and Furman? No. I mean, the answer is simple. No. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I'm alternating between Celsius and Gatorade Fast Twitch. And how's that going for well, you? I mean, they're both really good. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a science behind both of these about how it infuses 200 milligrams of caffeine into a, um, uh, you know, a, a severely damaged middle-aged uh, white male, uh, heterosexual white male, I might add. Um <laughs> 
for clarity's sake. <laughs> for clarity. And I don't believe that's anywhere in the literature, but go well, ahead. No, but no, but that's just in um but but they, they both work. Yeah. Uh, it's abundantly clear that they both work because our pace seems to intensify once we have a let me back up. Once I wrestling yeah, I mean, speak for yourself you know, here. Once I consume either a Gatorade fast switch or Celsius, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence, the pace intensifies and the um your the words per minute w- yeah the the words per minute increases uh miss pettigrew was never real proud of my words per minute in typing class she would have been proud of my words spoken <laughs> per minute maybe not words typed and sometimes uh, per minute you really get going and you start you know uh, conserving your syllables and you start putting words together economically speaking yes there, there you, you go. go you hear that josh <laughs> economically speaking Ooh. speaking clearly and proficiently is so overrated <laughs> it's so, why say three words when you can combine them all into one uh the, the greatest word we've ever coined here josh and i'll you know you can use this i'll give you you remember the team now optimism i mean why would you want to go through the effort of saying hopeful okay. and optimistic when you can say optimistic right i mean does that That's make right. sense to you it's, that's what abbreviation yeah. is for. Give that man a cigar, right? Um, <laughs> so, so, so during the break, you, uh, you you love this stuff. Well, and and you've touched on a subject that we knew we would get some passionate response to. So right now, all of our phone lines are tied up with people waiting to get on the air. We'll get there as soon as we can. And when it's really a subject that that gets passions going, people start calling the business office of the radio station. So that has started happening as well. So yes, during the break, we were brought some notes. Uh, from our uh, receptionist uh, who pointed out that we've been getting calls and uh, we had one gentleman who called and claimed that you are being disrespectful to school teachers having this discussion and he passes that message along and then adds in the caveat that uh, if you keep up doing this uh, they're not going to listen anymore so they don't want to make sure they mentioned that okay but uh, the point is um, uh, you know and somebody can choose to listen or not of course and certainly all opinions are welcome here we wish you'd call the the on-air line and Go on the air and make your opinions known. They are absolutely welcome. Agree or disagree, right? Um, but the point, what got my attention here is he says you're being disrespectful. And are we at the point, and this is a subject that goes even broader than our current discussion, are we at the point where if you ask a question, you know, point something out, give your point of view that it's disrespectful to even have that discussion? I can't answer for the masses. I can answer for yours truly. I don't care. I mean, I don't care if you feel disrespected. It's never my intent to be disrespectful. It's never my intent to, to mistreat anyone. Uh, look at our track record. We, we have a long history of um, trying to debate some of the issues that I think deserve um, debating. And every now and then, you you know, a hit dog barks, so to speak. And um, when you start going down the road of challenging um, some of the accuracies of certain storylines, and, and I'm not making up any numbers here. I mean, the, um, the previous caller was married to a school teacher. I would expect them to defend school teachers. If I were married to a school teacher, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd expect myself to defend. I mean, that's human nature. I'm not bothered by that. Uh, did, 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 did I tell Josh during the break, hey, Josh, no calls from school teachers or spouses from school teachers? Of course not. And, and for someone to call in and say I'm disrespecting school teachers because I'm accurately quoting data, that's your problem, not mine. And, you know, if you find another place to listen to someone who will tell you a lie and, and you know, go, go do that. But I'm not I'm not bothered at all by that. I mean, that you know, what other people think of me and for that matter, my opinion is none of my damn business. 
Uh, that's that's just the nature of what we of what we do here. Not now for everyone who says we're being disrespectful. I've got about four or five texts to say preach on, but this is a very important subject or issue. And, and if I've misrepresented something, then call me and tell me I've misrepresented something. Um, eighty-five percent of teachers in America sign a hundred and ninety-day contract that includes fifteen days of paid leave. The average teacher. I'm not in their homes. I don't know how long it takes to grade papers. All I can go on is by what the NEA and the Bureau of Labor Statistics is quoting. The average teacher works 175 days a year. The average private sector worker works 235 days per year. If the average salaries of teachers in South Carolina is $57,000, I'm rounding off. I think it's 56, 585 or something like that. For argument's sake, I'm rounding off and saying $57,000 that means teachers in South Carolina make about $326 a day. The private sector worker making a $57,000 commiserate salary makes about $243 a day. I mean, facts are stubborn things. Tr- truth is the truth. Now, now, once again, you could argue that teachers grade papers at home. Um, I do a lot of research on the radio show at home. I know a lot of business people who do work at home. They answer emails at home. They order paint at home. Um, construction companies, you got a purchasing agent. He ran out of time during the day. He carries his computer home. You and I transact business, Rev, very often at 8 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll text Rev, hey, do we have this straight for tomorrow morning? Uh, it, it's, you know, th- there's this mindset. And, and maybe, I mean, it, you know, I don't blame certain segments of our economy in them, you know, uh, I don't want to say embellishing their value. Teachers are enormously value or valuable to society, but but I don't buy into the narrative that some of these jobs are so much more important than other jobs. Um, okay, if all the school teachers went on strike, we would have a a much poorly educated populace. What would happen if every plumber in Florence, something Orangeburg, decided to go on strike today? What would happen if every truck driver decided to go on strike today? I, I just think we've, we've allowed ourselves to place certain values on certain professions, and it normally goes to political leanings and political biases and political involvement here. What, 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 if, the, um, what if the plumbers of America showed up at the state house and lobbied for their calls and said, hey, plumbers don't make enough money. We need to make more money. Electricians don't make enough money. We need to make more money. And, and, and to say that's disrespectful is absurd. What they're basically saying is challenging the status quo and challenging the, uh, you know, the, the, the narrative of the status quo is insulting and, and you know, um, what was the word again? Disrespectful. Mm-hmm. It's more disrespectful to not debate this. It's more insulting to not debate this than it is to debate and, and to, to, to engage. And, and all I'm saying is, and this is the truth, the truth is in America, Per the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the National Education Association, teachers work 175 days a year, and they make on average across the country about 67 grand. The average private sector workers work 235 days per year. Now, now, once again, how many road plow operators in the public sector work 235 days? But they don't operate on 190-day con. That's the unique part of this. And I don't know what a teacher should make a day. I don't have any idea what a teacher should make a year. But when you when you begin offering benefits for full-time employees working 175 days a year, it gets skewed. I mean, there's just a reality to that. 
Um, Rev thinks I know the number. That, 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 <laughs> you said you didn't. What you told the caller earlier. But, but off there during the break, you said you know that number. You just won't say it. Right. I do know it. I, I do know the number. I mean, I know what the state calculates as an insurance cost. Um, it's somewhere. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, I'll let you go peruse and find and, and figure out. But I mean, in my time in government, I wanted to know those. I mean, I, I'd like to believe that that's why I was a pretty decent elected official. I kept, you know, lousy books and I didn't do a job at campaign finance, but I knew a lot of the questions to ask. And I'd go to the county and I'd say, hey, what, what does insurance cost us on employees? And they'd look at me like, wow, nobody's ever asked that before. <laughs> well, I mean, very few people have run a business and get associated with politics. You're at Ralph Norman today, very frustrated, very, very discouraged about, you know, he can't get things accomplished in the, uh, in the house that he wants to get accomplished addressing the debt. Ralph's a business guy. Ralph spent his entire life in the private sector. Ralph understands how dangerous fiscal or how dangerous fiscal irresponsibility can be. But but to the to, to the listener who believes I've disrespected teachers, how do you honestly address an issue and disrespect at the same time? And once again, I think you're disrespecting the people who pay teachers if you don't allow this debate to take place and and an engagement to take place and um uh, you know once again if if you don't stop talking about it i'm going to find somebody else to listen to i'm not going to stop talking about it so find somebody else to listen to 843-661-0937 and you know that's typically the ploy when somebody is you know they they, they don't like what you're saying they don't want to hear it they say i'm not going to listen anymore well, I mean, there, there, there's a, there's a difference choice. in not liking what i'm saying and saying i'm disrespecting somebody you have every right in the world to say I don't like what you're talking about. I don't like the spin you're putting on that storyline or subject. The previous caller, I mean, he was married to a school teacher, and he said, you're wrong. Well, if I'm wrong, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is wrong, and the National Education Association is wrong. I mean, they should know better than I how many teachers operate on a 190-day contract, how much PTO is involved in or included in that. I would argue the reason I can be a little bit dangerous to some of the status quo is I kind of know. It's a little bit like, you know, when, when, when um, Dave Chappelle talks about Trump. I mean, I've not been in that room. What was Chappelle's talking about? Trump has. I've not been in that room. But but I've been in some of those rooms. And I know what happens in some of those rooms. Uh, Ralph Norman said this morning that when he became a no vote, a lot of lobbyists called him. I mean, you don't think the lobbyists say, hey, Ralph, good job on the no vote. Uh, thanks for, you know, curtailing spending by $1.2 trillion on green energy. And another $80 billion for IRS agents. I mean, do you think that's why the lobby is called? Of course not. But the lobby is called to see if they could change Ralph's mind on some of the green energy initiatives and some of the um, defunding of the excesses of the IRS. That's the way that world works. And, and if you don't believe public education is involved in lobbying government, then you're disrespectful to the taxpayer. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, uh, Ken, I don't agree with everything you say. I just have to tell you that. But in the same breath, I'd have to say preach on. Because uh, and I, I think that you need to talk about this and the complexity of the educational situation. And it is important. And we have a serious, serious problem from the ground up with education in this country. And throwing money at at the situation is not going to fix it because we have a, well, I, I would say a, a cultural issue 
and we have a training issue and the teachers are indoctrinated with this and that and the other and they come into the game not really prepared for what it is and there's a tremendous uh range of uh, i guess experience in uh in different schools and different places that uh some some schools I, I i wouldn't even feel comfortable walking into other schools it it would be a joy i think to teach in and that that's what is not taken into account the preparation of the children and uh, the the preparation that and the training of the children and the level of education they received prior to getting into the school system it's, it's a terribly complex issue it's a terribly important uh, issue and throwing money at it is not going to fix it because you you're basically going to have to change the instead the rules of engagement or the rules of operation that um, are in effect in many school districts that's just my view on well it. And, and thank you mike appreciate that i mean I, I, there, there's no I mean, I just don't see any evidence that 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 cheap sake taxpayers are not properly compensating professional teachers. I, I just, I mean, I mean is this that the narrative that the taxpayer is so greedy they don't want to fund education to the level that allows kids to be, you know, better educated? I mean, the teachers caught up in that quandary. I'll give you the, I'll give teachers a lot of credit here. You ready? Uh, between 2000 and 2019, uh, that's what 20 years. Student enrollment grew by 5%. The teaching force grew by 9%. So the teaching force grew by about twice the rate of student enrollment grew. Um, we had about 2.94 million teachers. We had about 3.2 million teachers now. So teachers grew by 9%. Student bodies grew by 5%. Principals and assistant principals grew by 37%. I mean, you want to know where the money's going? Remember what we did last week when we said the school district in Florence pays, I think, 2,002-ish full-time employees. I mean, that, that you know, that's the salary and wages and salary-related, compensation-related issues. We're talking about health care. We're talking about retirement pensions and whatnot. How much of that, the teacher funds, the principal funds, uh, they got about 800 and some odd people that don't teach that are being paid by the taxpayer. So student enrollment in the past 20 years has increased by 5%. The number of teachers has increased by 9%. Principals and assistant principals have increased from 142,000 to 194,000. That's a 37% increase. District administration staff has grown by 88% from 97,000 to 182,000 people. But there are layers of government within our school districts. Is that being disrespectful? I mean, if I don't talk about, you know, the group I'm disrespecting, the taxpayer. The taxpayer needs to deserve. The taxpayer knows now. Now, they can choose to do with that number what they choose to do with that number. But the National Education Association says that since 2009, or between 2009, excuse me, between 2000 and 2019, in a 20-year time frame, Student enrollment grew 5%. The teacher force grew by 9%. Principals and assistant principals grew by 37%. District administration staff grew by 88%. I guess that's disrespecting principals 
and assistant principals. I guess that's disrespecting district administrative personnel, but you know I'm not disrespecting the taxpayer. And if I get accused of disrespecting the taxpayer, I don't deserve to stand behind or sit behind this microphone. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, a couple of things here on the uh, teaching side of things. I'm a retired uh, higher education uh, professor, and Ken, I do take a little exception here. You mentioned Furman and Wofford. You got the Baptist and the Methodist covered, uh, but let's remember Presbyterian College is another one of those uh, high, high, high expense cost places uh, in PC. And I'm thrilled to on um, know in, that uh, Ralph Norman was in school there at the same time I was. So he is a distinguished Presbyterian College alumnus. And um, anyway, uh, I want to kind of go back to to that discussion. Um, you know, you can't always get what you want, but you sometimes you get what you need. Uh, only the the Republicans only control one half of one third of the government right now, and so I, I I'm sort of on the side of let's get this thing passed, let's get this default taken care of, and let's move forward. I do value what Newt Gingrich and Reverend Norquist are saying, and so this is perhaps uh, the start of a long process. And uh, uh, with the power over the appropriations coming up in, in the future, they've got a way to uh, control spending. Ralph doesn't believe the drop-dead date is really what they're being told um, by Yellen. And I believe that the Democrats, you know, in that rules committee, they were able, they voted against the, they voted against bringing the rule out. So they're trying to, you know, if the country wants to go into a default, they're, they're setting the Republicans up to be blamed for it. So... Uh, that's just some of the thoughts I jotted down. Um, um, Thank you, Sam. Well, the only exception I'll take is a lot of what Gingrich is saying, I've not found in the bill. I mean, a lot of what he's saying is a handshake contingent upon them doing what they say they're going to do. If you trust the Democrats to do what they say they're going to do in regards to the federal debt, I, I'm just afraid. Uh, I, I just hope the Republicans aren't that gullible. And I read Speaker Gingrich's endorsement of what is I mean, he says this is a starting point. This is the first step in a long process. But the things he says are true, they're handshakes. And I just don't trust a handshake with a Democrat when it comes to, you know, balancing the budget or or lessening uh, the federal debt. Thank you, Sam. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Somewhat of a spirited debate here. A little yeah. people get a little bit testy with one another. Well, testy's good for talk radio, right? Sure it is. I mean, anger is not. But being a little testy with one another. Uh, An honest debate yeah. is good. Well, I mean, honest debate is going to be testy, right? I mean, honest, times. vigorous debate is always going to be somewhat testy. Just don't be rude and disrespectful and ugly and, well, it's another word, um nasty yeah nasty mean. nasty would be a better word mean mean and nasty is this my wife said about politics didn't taylor swift have a song back when she was a country star right why you want to be so mean yep my wife always said that about politics. why you want to be so mean <laughs> why you want to be so mean man <laughs> uh it just is it is what it is let's go to the phone someone's there david in the pd good morning don't be mean uh trust me i'm not mean i'm a nice guy Hey, people talk about these colleges. I'm going to give you a shout-out to Newberry College. That's a Lutheran school. Lee Atwater, there's a guy that he could have solved a lot of problems if he had lived back in the day. And I was watching the, the Braves and the A's last night. Uh, did y'all have a chance to watch that game? Too late for me. 
Me too. Too, too late, late for you. Too I late. tell you what, I don't I don't know what was going on. The Braves can't beat a team the A's, but maybe it was the spirit of the nineteen seventy three Oakland A's and you remember this, they had Raleigh Fingers and Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson, Joe Rudy. And I went, I'm watching all this debate about the deficit and this and that. In 1973, the national deficit was $460 billion. In 1973, uh, our GDP was $1.4 trillion. Uh, so you compare that to today, I think our GDP is what, $25 trillion? Our debt is what, $31, $32 trillion. But then I went and researched China. Uh, back in 1973, China's GDP was $138 billion. I said billion with a B. Now they're $18 trillion. So here's, here's a little, you know, back in the day, there was an old adage, the business of America is business. No. The business of America today is government. And if they need to make deals with China, they'll do it. And, and any one of these tentacles, I call it, whether it be lobbyists, colleges, Pfizer, BlackRock, defense contractors, government unions, that's what the difference is between now and those days is that the business of America is government. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. And either... And and look, I mean, people have different ideas. People have different philosophies. I'm not trying to force people to believe exactly what I believe. I just believe personally that when when government's growing faster than the private sector, you're headed to a bad place. I mean, if I work in government, I don't buy that. If I depend on government, I don't buy that. I mean, if, if you know, if my entire excuse me, if my health insurance and and financial well-being is based on how much money government can get. I certainly understand self-preservation, whether you're in the public or private sector, but but it's undeniable, and it went for 16 consecutive quarters, government has grown at an average of 25% faster than the private sector. I mean, we can believe that's okay. I mean, philosophically, you can align with that. You can say, okay, um, the government needs to have a federal budget of um of six trillion dollars i'm just concerned to the point of almost alarmed that for 16 consecutive quarters the government has outgrown the private sector by an average of 25 percent i went back and looked rev and i did this intentionally a decade because i got in debate last night with a democrat lawmaker friend of mine about you know the trump tax cuts and and you, you know to, to get the revenue back in line you got to you know i mean a lot of these complications of balancing the federal budget I went back and looked at 2013, a, a, 10 years ago. Revenue from the government was $2.8 trillion. Um, the revenue, the, the, the federal government generated $2.8 trillion in revenue. Today, it's $5.1 trillion. A trillion, excuse my French, is an ass of money. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years ago. So we've gone from $2.8 trillion in revenue to over $5 trillion in revenue, and we're still spending a trillion we don't have. That's yeah, not enough. Now, now to me, I, I don't know how Apparently. you think that can be okay. I'm, I'm just, I was raised in a small town, building truck beds for a living by a self-made business guy. I wandered off into politics where accounting is different and numbers don't matter as much as they did in my private life. But I don't understand how anybody of sound-minded judgment can believe that eventually that doesn't lead 
to some major adjustment correction or what, what I like to refer to as our as our debt demise. That's my opinion. I know there are a lot of people who disagree with me. There are Keynesian economists. There are modern monetary theorists out there who see the world fundamentally different than I. But but to, to, to say revenue's the problem, I, you're going to have a hard time convincing me of that. Somebody who wants the um, the challenge of being president in a time where you know debt is a big issue with a lot of American voters is Ron DeSantis. He had a glitchy announcement on Twitter. Didn't go quite as well as they anticipated, but he's in Iowa today. I guess the first non-Twitter campaign event. Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is in our nation's capital. Tanya, what do we know about the um, the the campaign of Ron DeSantis making its way to uh, the first caucus state being Iowa? Well, actually, I'm in New York, but yes, um, we we do know that he was in Iowa. Uh, he's starting an early, you know, primary caucus state swing, basically. Uh, he's got four Iowa stops scheduled for today. Then he'll be in New Hampshire tomorrow, South Carolina Friday, and back to Iowa over the weekend for a fundraiser with uh, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. Um, he, like you said, this was his, you know, basically first in-person event. Um, that is, you know, more of the traditional sort when we look at campaigning for president. He spoke at a, a church in suburban uh, Des Moines. He, uh, there's about 500 people there gathered to hear him. He talked a lot more um, pointedly about the former president than he has done. You know, he's been getting kind of hammered by Trump over the last at least year um, because it has been suspected for a long time that he was going to jump into the race. And he hasn't really pointedly hit back until now. Um, and he said, you know, that he's going to fight back because he and he was talking about the recent criticism by the former president of his leadership during the pandemic. Um, he accused uh, Trump of pretty much abandoning America first principles on immigration, of supporting pandemic related lockdowns, said he had basically kind of moved left on key issues. Um, so those were pretty pointed compared to, like I said, what what has has happened up to this point. Um, Trump is also, by the way, expected to be in Iowa. I know he had scheduled stuff in Iowa tomorrow. I believe they've added a couple of de- of uh, places to go today in in Iowa as well. Uh, so you know, there's things are heating up, and there's also another GOP candidate that says he's going to announce in the next week. So you know, it's it's getting it's getting spicy. Tanya, I've run for office, and you can't be what you aren't. I mean, Trump will never stop being a character. I mean, he's a larger-than-life character. Some like that. Some don't much like that. But to me, DeSantis's lane is I'm a competent guy. I may not be the most charismatic guy. I may not be the larger-than-life character that Donald Trump is. But if you want a government competently run, you, you need to give me a shot. Is that a fair analysis? I, I think that I think that's a fair analysis. Um you know, obviously, we're going to hear more of of what he has to say, but he's 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 got a difficult. Let me let, let me back up. He's got a challenging needle to thread here, because you know he and Trump. It's not like they have completely different bases. They share voters. Um, you know, there are a lot of voters who say, "Well, if Trump is not available for some reason, then I would vote DeSantis." So we could, there's there's polling to back that up. Um, there's also a lot of polling, especially a fresh new one from from us at Fox uh, that says basically they're sitting now where they were in April, uh, which is Trump with about 53 percent of the vote. 
and DeSantis next in in line, the next closest one to him, with about 21% in April and 20% now, which is well, well within the margin of error. But nonetheless, I mean, Trump is leading him by like 30 points in in the, you know, who would you pick for the presidential, you know, the primary, the GOP uh, person that you would like to see get the nomination. There's also the Monmouth polling out yesterday that says 45% of GOP voters say Trump is the, the candidate that can beat Biden. Um, so, you know, it's, it's still, there's still, he's still kind of running away with all the polling at this point. But again, you know, DeSantis is going to have to court some of the same voters that Trump has without alienating them and still going after Trump. That's going to be interesting to watch. Very well explained. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Can we break the ice? I mean, I think we've been disrespectful. We've been rude. We've been nasty. <laughs> we've been accused of that yeah, stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, we've kind of done some of that. Um, just not today. <laughs> there have been other times. Well, yeah. Yeah, there have been other times we have been. Maybe not Not so much today. Can we do some whiners? Yeah. I mean, can we break the ice and do some whiners do today? It. Yeah. Uh, it's Wednesday. Whiner Wednesday. Let's go there. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? I am so tired of all this black, white issue. Whenever anything happens, numerous nations have had slaves in history. But who's teaching history anymore? I, I, I'll never defend slavery, that there's no reason or there's no sound reason to defend slavery. The argument I've made about slavery and race relations in America, as long as blacks are mad with whites and whites are mad with blacks, we're not mad at who's trying to divide us. I mean, I sincerely believe that. I was in the gym last week. In the song, a couple of black guys walk in and we start talking about, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And, and we kind of agreed, uh, you know, not, not officially. We didn't sign a document, but we agreed that the majority of race relations in America are stoked by people who have a lot to gain by being mad at one another instead of the authoritative figures that we should be uh, focusing our attention on. Hey, Ken, is it possible for us to sue Joe Biden for treason because it clearly says in the Constitution it is his job to secure our borders. To secure them, not to um, make it easy for people to come into this country. I mean, he is not holding up the oath of all. He swore an oath to uphold the Constitution and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The Constitution? The Constitution? The Constitution? Remember the uh, Jim Mora bit playoffs? <laughs> playoffs? Or, or the Allen Iverson yeah. practice? We're talking about practice? What we talking about practice? The Constitution? How I many do you believe people in Washington give a rat's rear end about the Constitution and what they're constitutionally obligated to do or, or constitutionally not allowed to do? You're talking about that crazy document that those old timers with knickers and silver hair is that the one you're talking about really that the one that put in motion the greatest government the history of mankind led to most prosperity and innovation and and technological advancement and lifting more people out of poverty improving the the you know the lot of the common man that the constitution you're talking about that fundamental agreement that we made as a nation to limit our government 
The Constitution? Who's paying attention to the Constitution? You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. Now, where do you think you're going? Wake Up Carolina will be right back. Call the Mr. Sparky No Malarkey Listener Line at 866-TELL-KEN. Hey guys, this is Andy. 843-661-0937 is our number. It'll be interesting to watch some of the um some of the polling averages move. Uh there will be some uh, I would imagine polling done in the next couple of days. Christie's a non-factor. I mean, this is all about DeSantis and Trump. I mean, it really is. The only other interesting figure is Ramaswamy. I mean, he's made a mark. I mean, what what does that mean? I mean, it doesn't mean he's going to be the nominee by any stretch of the imagination, but he's forcefully and disrespectfully addressed uh, some of the issues. I'm sorry. I just got to have a little fun with that. And I mean this sincerely. I mean, if you if you listen and you're willing to get motivated enough to write a note, surely you can be noted, motivated enough to call in. I mean, this is a call-in radio show with an open forum. Um, Josh hadn't been here long, but I don't think I've ever said, Josh, let's, you know, let's prioritize this kind of call or that kind of, of call or not let somebody on not let someone i mean education is very important teachers are very important to our nation's well-being our community's well-being uh you know my opinions don't diminish that uh they they, i I certainly don't intend to insult anybody but there's some very consequential conversations that i think america has to have with itself and one is how much money are we going to spend in, in educating our young people and what are our expectations as we spend more and more and more and more money educating young people. I don't think teachers are the problem. I think good teachers are a blessing. I think bad teachers should be, you know, dealt with uh, more effectively than they are. I think teachers unions, maybe not in South Carolina, but in some of these other places, uh, they guarantee a livelihood for somebody not good at their job. I mean, that's just a little bit oxymoronic to doing things uh, the right way. But But I hope we can have a legitimate conversation, maybe a, a controversial conversation about education, about taxes, about revenue, about a spending bill, the debt ceiling. Um, it doesn't seem that we're very interested in having these discussions because once again, um, you know, the easy thing to do is just kind of brush pack. You know, let's have a little more money. We need to pay teachers a little more. We need to pay administrators a little more. We need a little better job of educating our young people. Well, you know what the problem is? We don't have enough money. So let's go to the private sector and get a little more money. And I just think that's a bizarre argument to make. It's a more bizarre argument to accept. I mean, I understand the public sector making the argument. I mean, if I were in the public sector, I'd probably make the argument as well. It's bizarre to me how willing the private sector has been in making those concessions uh, to the um, to the public sector. But when you look at the presidential election, um, I was hoping, and it looks to me like it's not going to be the case, I was hoping that DeSantis, Biden, and Trump would be forced to go on the record about debt. They're not going to be because the um, the deal basically kicks the can, the proverbial can, uh, down the road until January of 2025. That makes it a little bit meaningless. We won't have another debt debate. I mean, there's some suggestion out there that McCarthy's playing chess, and in September we're talking about shutdowns and defaults and what's the difference 
in a government default and a government shutdown, and we're threatening to default now. We will shut down in September. And th- th- there's some uh, there- there's some creative ways to get there. I mean, I, you know, if I'm McCarthy, I would probably argue that this is the first step. In September, there will be another, and it goes back to CRs and omnibus. I mean, if Massey gets his way, and we can't CR uh, ourselves into um, debt demise, and we'll have to budget ourselves into debt demise. I don't know that I buy that. Once again, I, I want to be careful and say I've not read every page of the 99-page um, compromise that they've made. I did read the majority of the Republicans' bill when they literally herded cats and, and got all their members to agree. Um, I was concerned yesterday when I heard Thomas Massey say again, I mean, he reiterated in real time, I don't want to be uh, the guy that allows the, the, the procedural way to stop a big vote from taking place. So, you know, we'll vote tonight. Uh, Ralph Norman led us to believe that they have the votes to pass this very watered-down version of dealing with our federal debt. Um, I mean, I, Gingrich says this is chess, not checkers. This is one step along the way. But a big part of the step is accepting the Democrats at their word taking the Democrats at their word, literally a handshake, that we will get serious about the debt. Just help us get through this ordeal. I bet that works out. I don't buy that. I mean, maybe you do, but I'm reluctant to agree. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.